I don't know. I feel like 2021 has been such a whirlwind, which I'll take over the complete show that was 2020, but... Sure, but that's setting a pretty low bar. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly. not really... Like, <laughs> It's like this is oh, it's so true. this is better than like actual hell like in a fire like <laughs> then literally <laughs> yes <laughs> like the actual world of actual hell like where you are just burning in you know a hellscape forever like in actual fire yep. your body's being torn apart you're being tortured you know you have to listen to dave matthews band all of that just, oh can you imagine so 2020 was indeed not as bad as that uh but yeah definitely not a, a ton better so I, I have to issue a plea. Can somebody at Apple please fix the wonderful Crash Test Dummies album, God Shuffled His Feet, in Apple Music? <laughs> I know we've been down on Apple Music recently. <laughs> oh, and, I have so many thoughts, which I'm not going to get into <laughs> now. We have too much to talk about, but God, what a piece of crap Apple Music is. I know. Just Normally, I don't have too many problems with it, because I'm, I'm a pretty light user of it, really. But <laughs> I just I asked my HomePods this morning to play... The Crash Test Dummies album, God Shuffled His Feet. The one with, you know, that one. It's a big album from the, from the oh, 90s. Very well done. Very well done, Marco. Thank you. If I had more time, I would, I would do it at the right speed. But anyway, you're all listening at 2X anyway. <laughs> this is one of my favorite albums. It's a, it's, liking Crash Test Dummies is, is like one of the weirdest things you can, you can be if you're not Canadian. Like they were, they were really big in Canada. They were not at all big in the U.S. except for that one song. Um, and if you like Crash Test Dummies, it's a very weird band to like because every album is radically different than the other albums. And what they did after this, they had like one album I liked, A Worm's Life, and then everything after that, I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> it got really weird. <laughs> but anyway, this album, it's again, one of my favorite albums. And I listen, and I, I asked Siri, you know, hey, play play this album. And that worked. You don't, you don't have to like do anything weird to have it play a whole album in order. Like you can just say, play the album named blah, blah, blah. And it says, okay. So great, plays the first two tracks, great. The third track, it switches to a live version of it. And then, like, the next, like, a few tracks in a row were the live version from some live album I've never heard of and don't own. Then after that, it switched back to the studio version for a track or two, then back to a live version, and then back to the studio version for the last track. (laughs) Cool. Now, the... Really funny part of this was when I looked like on my iPad with the now playing in the control center for what's going on in your HomePods, which I love this integration. I've talked about it before. This is one of the best reasons to use Apple Music and AirPlay 2 because all you get this integration that's wonderful where you can interact with what's playing on your HomePods or whatever from your phone and from, and from any iPhone or iPad on your network, which is great. Uh, anyway, so I checked that and it's showing the studio album as the now playing. So Apple Music doesn't think it's playing a live version, but it totally is. And then just before the show, I'm like, let me just double check. Maybe this was something weird today. So just before the show, I went on my phone to see, like, what does my phone version of Apple Music think that it's playing? And it had the same problem where it was playing a mix of live versions and studio versions, but it was a different set of tracks that was wrong on the phone versus what was wrong from the HomePod earlier today. So... Please, Apple. I, I know there's there's got to be someone who works on Apple Music who either likes this really weird band like the way I do or maybe just is Canadian and therefore is more <laughs> likely to care about this band. Uh, but please fix the Crash Test Dummies album because it's a really good album and this is a really weird thing to be broken. <laughs> I did also, I even checked Spotify to see like maybe they did some kind of weird reissue of it for you know weird contractual mm-hmm, reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nope, Spotify version is perfect. Of course it is. And... I own this CD. I, ri- I ripped the CD into iTunes forever ago. I have it on my computer, 
but there's no way like because i have it i have it in you know itunes slash music on the mac i have my version there so it plays correctly because it's local files and, be, and I, have, I have itunes match and i have Apple music but there's no apparently there's no way for me to play my copy of it on my phone anymore <laughs> like i can only play the apple music copy which is broken oh my gosh so please apple fix the crash test dummies you know you know we sometimes make fun of the like the fact that like our our app store apps have like an artist and album field because like it was the repurposed mm-hmm, itunes mm-hmm. music store to make the app store right and the the underlying database schema dates back to itunes and all that stuff and it's kind of weird and awkward sometimes i think about when uh, when looking at apple music or hearing complaints about it just dealing with my own thing that the itunes music store was purpose built to be a music store so it can't use the excuse of like well we were just retrofitting onto an existing system we <laughs> had for e-commerce essentially right and i don't know about you but have i've, I've been in the position many many times across my career when I'm called upon to essentially create a data model for a thing that doesn't exist. And if I was making Apple's music store, granted, nobody can see the future and know whether it's going to be big or not or whatever, but if I was given that test, hey, we're going to sell music like over the internet, uh, we need a data model for this. It's kind of like the USB connector when I, you know, complain (laughs) so much about like if you're tasked with making a connector, like spend five minutes with a whiteboard thinking about what are the attributes of a good connector and write them down and see if you can hit some of those. Um, I don't think it's over-engineering or over-designing to think about when making the iTunes Music Store at the year that it was made, uh, concepts like uh, that lead to, that could potentially lead to the problem you have here. Like, for example, um, albums are released, and then sometimes there is a remaster or a re-release or an anniversary edition. Also, sometimes artists have best-of collections, which include songs from various albums, right? And like... I feel like one brainstorming session with anybody who has any interactional music will lead you to those things. And like, it's not a huge schema. It's not thousands of of columns and dozens of tables that are interrelated. Like it's not, it's, you could fit it on a whiteboard, but concepts like that are super important. I run into this all the time because I have lots of versions of U2 albums. And if maybe the iTunes store knows this, but if the iTunes store understands that my three different copies of the Joshua Tree are in fact different versions of the original Joshua Tree album from 1987. It does not. It is not apparent that iTunes understands that, but it's a really important concept because then, not only can you, you know, display that information, and understand it, but then you can avoid mistakes like like this by saying, okay, you're playing this album. If you don't give me any other information, I'll play the 1987 Joshua Tree, right? If you ask for the other ones, I'll play that. But if I'm playing the 1987, I hope I'm getting this year right. Sorry, YouTube fans. Uh, if I'm playing the <laughs> 1987 Joshua Tree, um, just play the tracks from the 1987 version. Don't get confused and switch to the remaster or the 30th anniversary edition or 20. Like, just play. Like, that's how you can tell. Don't try to match them up by, like, track name or title or especially if the re- remasters are just also called the Joshua Tree. Like, I'm not asking, like, again, the people who sit down to make this, that's got to come up in the first brainstorming session because it's a concept that exists. And if you build that into the data model from day one, it makes writing the app so much easier because say someone's trying to debug this from Apple Music or whatever, it can be confusing because the track names are the same and maybe the album name is the same and maybe, especially with iTunes Match, where it's trying to look at your files and match them up with the ones they have records of and it's hard to know which one they're matching against. This kind of metadata really helps. And so I do actually wonder, what is the underlying data model 
And how limited and dumb is it that, that errors like this come up all the time and there's apparently no recourse for us to like, <laughs> you know, fix it by changing the metadata. That's very true. Uh, since we're all filing Apple Music radars, uh, <laughs> let me file one verbally as well. I was listening to the aforementioned uh, Illusion is Nowadays, the new album. I believe it was on my computer the other day. And uh, it would play most of the album until there was about 45 seconds of a song left. And then the audio stopped. <laughs> it's, it's still playing, allegedly, but the audio stopped. The, the, you know, the timer is still, or the, you know, the counter, the play counter, whatever, the, the time is still ticking up, and no, no music is coming out of my computer speakers. I advance to the next track immediately. Music is coming from my speakers again. And then until about 45 seconds before the track ends, and then it all stops. I'm in a, I'm wired, wired Ethernet on a symmetric gigabit connection. There is no reason <laughs> that this should not be working, but here we are. Uh, so yeah, Apple Music not going well for Casey right now. I'm just going to say that, and I will try to leave it at that because we have a lot to talk about, starting with some follow-up. John, this first piece of follow-up is for you. Are you just trying to avoid pronouncing Tatsuhiko Miyagawa's first name and last name? That is exactly correct, because I did not have the time to practice, and I thought, you know what? This is what you put in. You can do it. Thanks, I bud. Know, I know this person from the internet, and Pearl. Um, so I had practice. All right, so uh, the last show, I was trying to think of some kind of interview where some Apple executive tried to give an explanation of why there is no uh, weather or calculator app on the iPad, and apparently it was an interview with Craig Federighi uh, by MKBHD, uh, we will have a link in the show notes to the timestamp offset where you can hear his answer. And I, I had said last show that it wasn't a very good answer. It's not. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, public relations answer where you have to try to make a reason that makes you seem good. And, and uh, CFED's answer was like, well, we don't want to do those apps unless we can do like something really special. Like we have a really good idea. We really want to do them right and well. And on the one hand, it makes you think like you wouldn't say that if you're a savvy Apple executive, you wouldn't say that unless there was actually some kind of internal project to make a really good fancy iPad weather app and calculator app, because it, otherwise it sounds like, oh, we never want we didn't want to do it unless we could do something really special. You're setting yourself up for criticism if you ever release one as just a, an enlarged version, because what do you say then? So it makes me think that maybe there actually is a very low priority project or two inside Apple to make these versions of the apps. But the second problem with the answer, of course, is people don't care if it's something special for the iPad. Just make the app so it exists. <laughs> like, just make make the iPhone app bigger. It's fine. Like, people just want it to be there, especially calculator. Like, we really want to do something special. Oh, really? With a calculator? How about having buttons you can press to add numbers together? Like, it's not rocket <laughs> science. there. <laughs> well, and I, I feel like that's kind of a BS excuse, too, because you look at something like like the clock app. You know, if originally, there was no clock app on the iPad. That, that came later. They did something, they did something spe really special with it, I Yeah, think. they just blew up the iPhone version. <laughs> it's fine. Like, there's nothing. Which is fine, right? Like That's we, what we need. Yes, it's like you don't need to do it. Like I, that's that that to me was a BS excuse. And the funniest thing was they just redid their weather app for iOS 15, and there isn't an iPad version of that. Yeah. And th and they made it really cool. And I think if you took the iOS 15 weather app and just made it bigger, it would still be a really cool weather app. It's not like it gets worse. <laughs> like I understand the idea of like oh, it, it, I mean, especially back in the the early days, it was like. If you can't think of some way to add a sidebar to your app on the iPad, you're not really going iPad native. Like, don't just take your phone app and stretch it. Like, it was a criticism of a lot of the Android tablet apps. It was like, oh, it's just the phone app and bigger. Um, and that's true. You shouldn't just take your phone app and make it bigger. But it's also true that people come to expect a certain baseline set of functionality. Apple has trained them to expect this because it's available on the phone. 
Uh, and at a certain point, it's better to have a calculator app than to have a really fancy one that takes advantage of the screen space and has like scientific calculations and, and uh, reverse polish notation and 10 memories and a graphing function. Like that's great if you want to make that up, but you can also just make the calculator and, and have it be a little bit bigger and people will be fine with that. Again, they're getting it for free with the, with the iPad. You don't, you know, I, I, if you can't think of some way to put in like a sidebar or like a persistent tape in your calculator, it's okay just to make for the 1.0, a big calculator app. And the weather app, like I said, I think the graphics and fidelity and layout lend themselves well to an iPad-sized screen. Yeah, look at weatherspace.it. It looks just like Apple's, but bigger. <laughs> right. Apple can make theirs rotate to landscape and just blow it out of the water. You know, I, I think I've made this joke already, but, you know, if only Apple had some sort of cross-platform framework that they already wrote the weather app refresh <laughs> in... In order to put it on the iPad. Like, imagine if they used, you know, like some sort of Swift thing that was built for user interfaces. I, I don't know why you're trying to make this joke. You realize the iPad and the iPhone both use UIKit. Like, that already is the cross-platform framework. Like, it's like not. they have three different... Like, if they, can, they can use UIKit. They can use UIKit plus Catalyst on the Mac. And they, and they can use Swift UI. Like, they have so many options. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they can even use Electron. I hear that's getting popular. We'll get to that later. <laughs> hey <Hey-oh. laughs> All right, moving, moving right along. God, we are way behind already, and we're only 20 minutes in. All right, uh, the AMD W6-whatever video cards or workstation cards, nobody cares because it's Mac Pro stuff. Moving right along. Oh, we so care. Is that just one item of Mac uh, Pro stuff? Okay. Come on. So, I, there I was tried, debate. everybody. I tried. There was some debate last time about whether Apple's uh, graphics cards, these new AMD fancy ones, are the quote-unquote workstation cards, and that's why they're so expensive. So, uh, Hishnash says, the AMD Pro W-whatever, works. the W apparently stands for workstation, cards get the Pro drivers. This unlocks some driver features and pathways when running on Windows on a Mac, when, run, when running Windows on a Mac Pro with a W card, you have access to these pathways as well. So my question is like, okay, that's great. I understand that you get access to more features in the Windows drivers, but is it actually a different card? Are there any hardware differences? And so Guillaume Lowell says, it is indeed the same GPUs used in the gaming cards with the same performance. So there's not a hard, it's not like an entirely different GPU. It's the same GPU. And Hishnash says, there's possibly some binning, and he's not sure if the memory controllers are validated for 32 gigs on the cheaper version of this, on the non-workstation one. But I think it's mostly segmentation by AMD. Apple will be paying AMD a lot more for these GPUs than for a gaming, than a gaming OEM would due to the Pro W driver support in Windows. So it seems like okay, these are the quote-unquote workstation cards, but the only thing that's workstation about them is that when you run Windows, you get to use the workstation drivers, which expose new functionality. When you're running Mac OS, is there literally any difference? Because if the hardware is the same and the driver is the same, it's very confusing. And, and again, you can put the non-workstation AMD 68 or 6900 into a Mac Pro, and it will use, I think, the same drivers as the workstation one. That's the open question of whether Apple has special workstation drivers or whatever. Um, so a little bit more on this, comparing the W6800 to the W6800X, like the PC workstation and the Mac workstation one, they seem identical except for a slight a clock drop. The W6800 is advertised as 17 teraflops versus Apple's being just 16. The W6800 on the PC is $2,100, and so Apple's price of 2800 is not that extreme given Thunderbolt, et cetera. And again, they're charging you more both on Mac and PC for the W card, for the exact same hardware, as far as we've been able to determine, except that on Windows, you get to use better drivers, which expose more of that hardware to Windows. And I think, and you know, more memory and possibly a higher grade of memory. I don't know. 
But you can get, I think you can get the the gaming 6900 with 32 gigs of RAM. I'm not entirely sure. That's that's the question of what mix of hardware you get. Maybe you can get a cheaper memory controller. But like the fact that the GPU itself, it used to be that you'd get an entirely different GPU. Like it would be a different chip that had different features in it. It was often worse in games and better in workstation type stuff. But this is the same GPU. It's just like heat features are hidden behind a software thing on Windows only, and who knows what it's like on the Mac. So it doesn't make me feel that much better. But anyway, these are expensive cards. Yeah, and, and the, the moral of the story is that Apple is not marking up a $600 card to $3,000. They're marking up a $2,200 card to $3,000. And the, that, other, <laughs> that first markup was happening at AMD's level, not Apple's level. <laughs> yeah, AMD, AMD is marking up a $600 card to a $2,000 card or whatever. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Although it's not the like again like you can AMD has like like reference implementations, but I think you can just buy the GPU from AMD and then build your own card. Anyway, the GPU market is confusing and scary. Oh, speaking of confusing and scary, what, is that Daisy out here? I assume I don't think Hops can make that sound. Yeah, I was she's having her say yeah, she's she's a, a terrifying beast. She does not like the GPU market. No, no. <laughs> or maybe she just doesn't like talking about the Mac Pro. Maybe that's the problem. We are sponsored this week by Memberful. Monetize your passion with membership and build sustainable recurring revenue from your audience. Memberful, quite simply, lets you sell subscriptions to your audience. Whatever you want to deliver to them, whether it's custom perks, you know, custom maybe custom podcast episodes, stuff like that, Memberful is the platform to do that with. It's super easy for you to set up. It integrates with all the tools you probably already use. And they let you control everything about it. You have full control of the branding, you have full control over your audience, and you have full control over your membership. Payments even go directly to your own Stripe account. And of course, they have everything you might need beyond that. So things like dashboard analytics, uh, member management features, free trials, gift subscriptions, all of this is available on Memberful. It's used by some of the biggest creators on the web for good reason. They align their goals with your goals. They don't want to like lock you in. They don't want to play tricks or anything. They want to help you make money from your audience. That way you can sustain your revenue. You can have really lasting, you know, audience income. And it's really, really nice to have this. You know, we, we have this here and frankly, I kind of wish I built it on memberful some days. <laughs> There's a lot of times that, that I wish I didn't have to, you know, build and maintain it myself. And were I building a new system today, I would definitely give memberful a very strong look. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's, you know, you can get started for free. There's no credit card required. Again, it integrates with everything. They have great support if you need it, although you probably won't because it's super easy. See for yourself at memberful.com slash ATP. Get started. Again, there's no credit card required to get started. Memberful.com slash ATP. Sell memberships to your audience to build sustainable recurring revenue with Memberful. Thank you so much to Memberful for sponsoring our show. Adrian writes, uh, with regard to bug bounties, and I, I think we theorized on the show, or I don't remember how it came up, but, you know, why doesn't Apple pay bigger bug bounties? Like, why don't they, they have more money than God? Why not just pay all the money for really good bug bounties? And Adrian writes, Apple can't just pay bananas bug bounties because if they did, all the internal bug hunters would quit and make more doing the same job from the outside. It's a delicate balance and bug hunters have to want to do the right thing for it to work. I, I do agree with this and this does make sense, but then again... Apple, uh, like developers and employees, get a lot of tools and a lot of information that an external person wouldn't get. And I know nothing about hunting for bugs, but it seems to me like that would still be attractive 
if money is not your only driving force in the world, which for most people it probably is. I mean, they get health insurance and a salary. And even if they don't find any bugs, they keep getting paychecks. Like, it's, I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's an apples to apples haha, uh, comparison here. <laughs> people who are, are finding them in the outside world, it's, it's kind of like trying to win the lottery. Whereas getting a job on the security team at Apple is a much different financial and life arrangement that is much more attractive to some people than being outside Apple and competing with the rest of the world in the hopes that you'll find a bug bounty that then you can convince Apple to pay you for. Yeah, I also, I don't like this argument. And first of all, I think we heard this argument from inside because the, we heard this from a number of different people on from a number of different you know names and stuff and through a number of different like avenues of contacting us. And so this kind of feels like we actually like hit the right people <laughs> with, with our rant last time. Um, but to me, it's, you know, they're saying like, well, if, if Apple paid higher bug bounties, then we'd have to like, then the internal people would quit because they'd make more on the outside. Well, pay the internal people more. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, that's not the only option here. Like, you could like, if the market value of finding these is so high, that you know, some company in some other country wants to sell it to Saudi Arabia or whatever for a million dollars, like, if the value is so high, then you kind of have to pay it, whatever it takes. And so if you if it if it takes paying the internal bug hunters enough that they aren't tempted to quit and play the lottery, as John was just saying, like if they can just make good money internally, well, that's the market for that. Apple is in a very high profile position in the world, and they have created, you know, through their success, you know, and good for them, they've created a very high value for the for exploits of, of their system. And so if the value of an exploit is a million dollars or two million dollars or whatever it is, who cares how they have to pay for it, who they have to pay, what like they should be they should still be the ones paying for it, not some random, you know, exploit company that's gonna sell it to a creepy government. I mean, and you can do what they do with salespeople, right? So you give them a, a decent salary, but you say, hey, if you find one of these bugs, we just pay the bounty to you. Like it happens in, for salespeople all the time. Or I don't even know if there's a base salary half the time for salespeople. It's like if you make lots of big sales, you get lots of money. Like the it's like the question is, how valuable is this to Apple? And whatever that number is, pay it to whoever finds the bug. And I think the internal people, you can adjust and say, okay, well, the internal people get health insurance and benefits and a, and a regular salary. But also, if an internal person hits the jackpot and finds some kernel bug, or even maybe the whole team does it, like, give them the money that you would have given the external. Like, this is a solvable problem. You know, this is one of the few cases where Apple having tons of money actually does help solve this problem. It's not so easy in other cases. Apple should just hire all the people especially if apple's being stupid about remote which they're still kind of being stupid about it's not that easy to turn money into talent but in this case money actually does solve this problem and apple has a <laughs> lot of it and so like you know i don't I, again i don't think you have to you don't have to make them exactly the same because i think there are be real tangible benefits to be a salaried apple employee like say stock benefits like things that the bug bounty people don't get but you just have to make them competitive and comparable. That's all. And then for the external people, like we said last week, make it easy for them to get paid. Make it so that everybody says, hey, if you find a bug, totally go to Apple because you get paid quickly and conveniently because that's the way you get people to send you bugs. Exactly. The The reputation Apple should have amongst the security community is that if you find something broken about iOS, that you can go to Apple and get paid well and easily and correctly. Like that, that should be the reputation that they develop they don't have it now and that's that's a bad thing but i that's what they should be developing and if they have to end up you know paying their internal bug hunters more fine that's just that's part of part of how you get to that end state 
They can do it. It's fine. No one has ever said Apple pays way too much money to its employees. I've never heard anybody <laughs> ever say that. So I think they can afford to, you know, raise the salary of this department if they have to and raise the bug bounties if they have to. Like, they can totally do that. And the fact is, that's what the market values these at. And so whatever the market values them at, Apple should be willing to outbid anybody else in the market. Yep, definitely agree. Uh, some quick uh, iCloud photo library follow-up. Um, it's funny, unlike Apple Music, which I feel like is you know nails on a chalkboard every time I use it, I still am mostly enjoying iCloud photo library, but it's not perfect because guess what? It's Apple Web Services. So my laptop, I tried to do an import of some photos into iCloud photo library on my laptop and it hung. By that, I mean, like, the Photos app's still working. It's just they never got uploaded after days, after reboots, after Ethernet, after Wi-Fi. didn't matter. They never got uploaded. So I thought, okay, fine. On the laptop, anyway, I have the, you know, Photos repository in its own, um, not partition, but you know what I'm saying, like volume or whatever the technical term is. Sorry, John. And uh, so I, you know, just tossed the volume, rebuilt it, and created a new iCloud photo library. This time, or excuse me, created a new local photo library. This time it actually synced very quickly, which I was quite happy about. Um, but now I have not gotten any new pictures since the 4th. And as we record this, it's the 11th. It's just frozen in time on August 4th. Wonderful. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, and then secondly, I went to start fiddling around with smart albums, which the concept of smart albums, I really like. Uh, in fact, I keep meaning to I haven't done it yet, but I loved your idea, John, of setting a smart album for the person is Declan, but the time the picture was taken was before he was born. Like I haven't, I haven't done this yet, but I love that idea. I think it's a great idea. And I started, for example, um, doing, trying to like have a smart album for pictures taken by my drone and, there were a couple other things I was trying to do, and I feel like there are just not that many smart album like filtering options. And yes, I think I could have handled the drone, or I may have already done that or whatever, but I forget what it was off the top of my head, and I want to kind of try to keep this short, so I'm just going to move on. But I really wish there were more options for smart albums for things you could filter by, and maybe that's just me, but please and thank you. Yeah, one way you can help to work around that is uh, use the criteria that are there to search for photos, and then apply keywords to them and then use that keyword for filtering. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can make your own criteria essentially, but because you can make any number of keywords. So in the little keywords interface, command K, add as many keywords as you want and use the existing smart album features to find the photos that you want to apply those keywords to, and then use those keywords in your smart albums. It's a, it's a little bit of a workaround, but I, I'm really a, a big fan of keywords since you can make them up at any time and apply them to any photos you want. They really help organize things. And of course, you can apply multiple to the same photo. So it's a little bit tedious sometimes to apply them. But like I said, finding them in big batches and applying them uh, usually goes a long way. And you can always amend them later by removing and adding. Uh, I, to I fully endorse, uh, Casey, if you're doing this, assigning uh, keyboard shortcuts to the keywords. So you can press a single letter to uh, to assign a keyword or remove it, like an unmodified keystroke. So you can just type, like I type D, which is for Daisy, my dog. That is also for dog, huh? Um, <laughs> and I can go through photos and really quickly, like, you know, select a range and hit D. These are all Daisy. Or select a photo and hit D to remove the Daisy tag because it misidentified. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, you run out of keys, but it's kind of like using VI. Like, these are not Command D, not Control D, not Option D, just plain D. Um, and it all, by the way, uh, another thing, yeah, I, I don't know how you'd figure this out. I just assume everyone knows because I use it all the time, but people probably don't. Those shortcuts only work when the keywords floating palette is, is visible. So you won't be accidentally hitting the keyboard to like, oh, I just labeled all my photos accidentally because my elbow hit the keyboard, right? 
those key shortcuts only work after you've hit Command K and made the floating keywords palette visible. So you can make it visible, shove it off to the side, and then just select photos and just get and hit the thing. And, and it's actually pretty quick. It's all just using doing a SQLite update under the covers, I'm pretty sure. So it's actually pretty fast to remove them. It has some visual feedback. You can see like it turning red when it removes the Daisy keyword and showing Daisy in white or whatever when it adds it. Give it a try. We are sponsored this week by ExpressVPN. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, anybody on that same network can gain access to anything you send or receive on the network that's unencrypted. And, you know, we all use HTTPS wherever we can and lots of things are secure, but it's it's not necessarily always everything. It doesn't take much knowledge to intercept that traffic for anybody, any hacker, anybody with you know bad intentions. And even ISPs are doing stuff like injecting ads into unencrypted pages and everything. It's kind of a mess out there. So ExpressVPN is a great way to secure your connection, to use a, a wonderful, trustworthy VPN in places where you have to use someone else's network or an untrusted network. It's kind of like, you know, encryption insurance for you. It ensures that all traffic coming out of your devices is encrypted. And that way the people operating your network can't intercept it. They can't see it. They can't inject ads into it, whatever they want to do. ExpressVPN is very simple to use. If you're going to use a VPN, this is a very, very well-rated one by lots of people. You don't have to take my word for it. Look up the reviews. See for yourself. ExpressVPN is very highly rated. If you're going to use a VPN, for whatever reasons you might have to use one, ExpressVPN is a great choice. It's simple to use. It works on all your devices. It's a single app you install. You click one button to get protected. That's it. It's super easy. Secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash ATP. That's expressvpn.com slash ATP. There you can get three months free with a one-year package. Once again, expressvpn.com slash ATP. Thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring our show. Buckle up. Here we go. Um, let me start by saying, uh, if you are the kind of person that listens to this in front of your children, uh, that's awesome. And hi, kids. We're so happy that you uh, listen to us. But not this time. <laughs> this time, I, I strongly encourage you to use your chapter skip functionality in Overcast or whatever not as good as Overcast podcast uh, client that you're using, and maybe skip this chapter until after the kids are in bed. Uh, you probably know where this is going, but uh, we'd like to talk about Apple's new child safety features. So there's not going to be uh, like swear words or anything like that, but obviously the content from here on out, we're going to assume uh, only adults are listening. So please be careful. That being said, uh, so Apple announced sometime, uh, I think around the time we recorded last week or maybe shortly thereafter. It was like an hour after we released the show. Okay, there you go. Uh, Apple released uh, or announced some new child safety features. And there's a whole uh, landing page at apple.com slash child hyphen safety. And there are basically three major features. And I think in part because they were all announced simultaneously, there's a lot of confusion, including from me, as to what happens where and when and what what all these are about. So we're going to try as much for ourselves as for all of you to try to break this down and, and, and make sense of it. So let me start with the like 50,000 foot view. And so here again, there are three major components that Apple has announced. Number one, the Messages app will use on-device machine learning to warn about sensitive content while keeping private communications unreadable by Apple. And we'll, we'll dive a little deeper into this in a moment. Number two, 
iOS and iPadOS will use new applications of cryptography to help limit the spread of child... Oh, help me with this child... Sexual abuse material? CSAM. Yep, I wanted... I, but that was the first time we said it. Yeah, it's it's what what used to be called child pornography, and this is now like the new modern, more inclusive, I think, term for... Mm. Or more accurate. Yeah, think, yeah, child, yeah, child abuse of material. Right. So, uh, so let me start from the top. iOS and iPadOS will use new applications of cryptography to help limit the spread of CSAM online. While designing for user privacy, CSAM detection will help Apple provide valuable information to law enforcement on collections of CSAM in iCloud photos. Here again, there's a lot to dive into on that one, which is probably where we're going to spend most of our time here in a moment. Then finally, the third one, updates to Siri and Search provide parents and children expanded information and help if they encounter unsafe situations. Siri and Search will also intervene when users try to search for CSAM-related topics. So that's the broad overview. Three things. Some stuff on device with messages. Some stuff that's working in concert between uh, what's on your device and what's on Apple servers for uh, photos. And then finally, presumably almost entirely server-side, updates to Siri and search. So that is the broad overview. Gentlemen, I can keep going deeper, but do you want to jump in now with any tidbits? I think we should start with the messages one. I know you said you thought we'd spend more time on the photos one, but the more I read up on this, the more I think the messages one is actually a little bit of a more difficult situation. Um, and no, and by the way, no one seems to talk about the Siri and search thing, but I think that is also related to this. So maybe I'll try to fold it into this discussion um so the message is one that that description is vague like oh on device machine learning to warn about sensitive content what is it actually doing right so what it's doing is it's trying to see if kids send or receive uh sexually explicit material uh by detecting that on device uh and then when it detects it depending on what the situation is it pops up some kind of uh dialogue to the to the person who is sending or receiving and gives them a bunch of options right now um, Gruber had a good explanation of these features with more detail on his website, and we'll link to that. Um, so the first thing to know about the messages thing is this only applies for children in an iCloud family account. So if you are not a child in an iCloud family account, I think Apple defines child as like, uh, I don't know when, when it stops. For this maybe. feature, I believe it's only up to 13. Well, there's there, there's caveats, but anyway. So if you're, if you're not a child in an iCloud family, this feature doesn't exist for you, whatever. Um, and... Even if it does apply to you, you need to explicitly opt in. So you don't, you won't, your ch- kids won't be opted into this without you doing it. It's an opt-in type of thing, right? Um, so how does it work? If you send or receive an explicit image, uh, you get a warning about the, about the image. I don't know what the warning says. I think there's been some screenshots of it, but it like, it, you know, this is aimed at like, you know, younger kids. And you have two options at that point. You can ignore the warning and if you are if you are under 12 years old according to what apple knows of your age because you're in the iCloud family account it says basically to the under 12 year old if you choose to either continue to send or continue to receive this image that we're not yet showing you and you're under 12 we want you to know that we're going to notify your parents so the kids in theory are told like you can continue and you can do what you're doing but just so you know we're going to send your parents a notification about it right um if you're older than 12 there's no parental notification thing at all. It just says, hey, are you sure you want to do this? And the kids can just say yes, 
right? For what it's worth, I, I actually thought the verbiage that Apple cited on their uh, child safety page is very good and worth reading. Now, obviously, I'm no expert in this, but I thought it was good. So if you if you are receiving an image that has sensitive content, it says, you know, huge thinking emoji, this could be sensitive to view. Are you sure? And then it has like three basically bullets after that. Sensitive photos and videos show the private body parts that you would cover with bathing suits. It's not your fault, but sensitive photos and videos can be used to hurt you. The person in this might not want it seen. It could have been shared without them knowing. And it says, I'm sure or not now, with not now being the obvious default. And then um, there's a second dialogue. You know, it's your choice, but your parents want to know you're safe. And this, again, three bullets. If you decide to view this, your parents will get a notification to make sure you're okay. Don't share anything you don't want to. Talk to someone you trust if you feel, if you feel pressured. If you're not alone, you can always get help here, and it, it appears that here's a hyperlink, and then the two options are don't view photo, which is the default, and view photo. So when you read this, you can see you can see you kind of see the target audience in your mind. A kid under 12 who's involved in either sending or receiving these things is lots of dangerous situations in which you, it would be good if there was some intervention of someone warning or, you know, like, like it, it. when you're picturing the ideal scenario, like these are all good things. But of course, when you're designing any feature like this, uh, any feature between parents and children, it is always fraught because not all parents are good parents and not all children are in a safe situation. Like this feature, I'm not going to say this feature assumes that all kids are in a safe situation because it doesn't. Apple does a bunch of stuff to mitigate this. For example, Apple doesn't immediately notify the parents without telling the kids because if you just assumed, oh, all parents are good and all children are in a safe situation. Why this whole dance with letting the kid opt out of the warning? What kid is going to read that and choose to notify their parents? That warning undercuts the whole feature, doesn't it? That that choice to bail out and avoid the notification to the parents exists, at least in part, because Apple knows that not all parents are great parents and not all kids are in safe situations, right? The difficult balance of this feature, and the reason why I think it's actually trickier to think about, is how do you... like? Does this increase the chance that a child who uh, a child reveals something in an unsafe parent-child relationship that makes that situation worse? There are many parents that will have a bad reaction to knowing that their kids are viewing any kind of sexually explicit images, especially if they're sexually explicit images that are not uh, aligned with the sexuality that the parent thinks the kid should have, let's say. Right? You can't just assume that all parents are there to save and protect their children or that all parents' idea of protection matches what Apple's idea of protection is, right? And you would say, okay, well, but those kids just can send, can do the thing where they don't uh, notify the parents. Everything's fine, right? These are kids under 12. How many kids have you seen tap through dialogue boxes without reading the text? <laughs> How right? many adults? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, and it's especially, and, and I will add, on top of that, you know, even an 11 and 12 year old can be, in, depending on the situation, if it's two 12-year-olds swapping naked pictures of each other who are like in a relationship or whatever, those kids may be highly motivated to see that picture. And not kids don't always make <laughs> the best choices, right? <laughs> you know, a 12-year-old kid may not necessarily make the quote-unquote best choices as in, uh, I know my parents are going to be notified, but I'm going to take the risk. Uh, you know, there's, there's a reason children who are 12 years old aren't allowed to vote or drive cars and stuff like where they're still they're still growing they're still learning right so even in the best of situations this feature can lead to harms that would otherwise not happen um now like this is why it's so difficult to think about this you say well should should they should we just do nothing should we, should there be no features 
that help a healthy parent-child relationship. Think of Marco putting his Apple Watch on his son so he knows where he is. Features like that can be abused by parents who are not good parents to their children, to kids who are not in a safe situation. Location tracking can be used as a form of oppression. It's not how Marco's using it, not how most parents are using it, but should that feature not exist because it can be abused? Every time Apple adds a feature like this, you can see some thought and some part of the design going into the notion that we have to mitigate against the worst case scenario. But it's difficult to argue that none of these features should ever exist because there is a benefit to them and you're trying to balance the potential harm with the potential benefit. In a case like this, where we're trying to deal with child sexual abuse, the harm is so terrible that to do nothing, to me, feels worse than to try to do something. But when you try to do something, you do have to, A, try to mitigate against harms that you can imagine might happen, which I think Apple's doing, and B, accept feedback from the world and your customers about how you might be able to improve the situation by mitigating that harm in a better way. I'm not full of great ideas for this. That's why I think a lot of people have difficulty talking about this topic, because if anyone if anyone is talking about this topic and they're like, there is an obvious solution that Apple should have done that is so much better than what they did and they should just do it, I'm suspicious of that. Because, because unless they're extremists and they say, well, Apple should never include any features that have anything to do with parents and children because because any harm is worse than nothing. Like, I, you know, the extremists sort of, and we'll get to that with the photos thing of just like, freedom over everything kind of the eff thing where like if you are a lobbying organization where you are staking out one end of a spectrum there is a place for organizations like that i mean i like the eff i donate to them but i always know that the position they're going to stake out is the most extreme in favor of freedom doesn't mean i always agree with them but i feel like that that force needs to be there to counteract the other force, which is, you know, naked authoritarianism. We have plenty of that in the world, right? So those <laughs> those two extremes need to fight it out. And I'm way more towards the AFF side of the spectrum to be clear, way, way, way closer. But they're always going to say, this feature shouldn't exist at all. I don't agree with that, but I also agree that it's super hard to do this feature in a way that doesn't accidentally end up harming a bunch of kids that would otherwise not be harmed, either on purpose or by accident, because now this feature gives parents a, you know, gives, you know, parents, bad parents, I don't want to say bad parents, but like children who are, in, who are in an unsafe situation are now in more danger because of the danger posed by this. Previously, there was no way to accidentally hit a button and notify your parents that you're doing something you know is going to make your life worse, right? And now there is. But the reason this exists is because there is other harm that we're trying to stop as well. So I have a real trouble figuring out how to feel about this feature right now i kind of feel like trying to do something is better than doing nothing but i do hope apple iterates on this and i do believe that there can be a better way to implement this with even more safety for kids in bad situations i mean this first of all like this w- giant disclaimer from from at least me here and probably you you too as well it's hard for me to talk about stuff like this because this is a like the the horrible dark world of child sexual abuse and and this all this stuff that this is trying to prevent or or you know find at least it we are not experts in this world that we are fortunate enough that we haven't had to be um and there, this is like it's such a terrible like set of things that that happens here and and 
again, like we're lucky that we're that we're not experts, but because we have a tech podcast, we and because tech is so big and it encompasses so much of the world, stuff like this lands on our feet of like, well, this is what our audience expects us to be, to, to be talking about this week. It's very relevant, and and so here we are. And I feel like many of you out there are kind of put in the same position, like as, as consumers of tech news and Apple news, and, and you know, or just being Apple fans and being enthusiasts of this stuff, like. This stuff comes up, and all of a sudden, we all have to like take a crash course in what all this stuff means. What is that? What is going on in the world out there? You know, what what problems and and solutions already exist? What have people already been doing? What have companies already been doing? So we're in unfamiliar territory here, uh, to fortunately a large degree. Um, so please forgive us if we you know miss some aspect of this or stumble over parts of this because it's very uncomfortable uh, to even be thinking about this stuff because it's it's so like you know actual sexual abuse is so horrific. I think as, as we'll get to in a minute when we talk about the, the CSAM scanning feature, it has special treatment in society because it is so horrific. Like, it's such a special case in so many ways uh, of how we treat things. So anyway, all of that being said, um, and we'll get, we'll get back to that other part in a minute, all that being said, the, you know, the messages, you know, nudity censored, basically, it seems like they've done a pretty decent job of avoiding most of the problems with the parameters they've put in place with this feature. Um, if the feature went up to 18, I think that would be much more problematic because, you know, there's, I think everyone can agree that you don't really want nine-year-olds sharing nude photos with each other. Um, but people have different definitions of like things like age of consent and everything as you get closer to 18. Like you could argue, many people do argue if a 17-year-old girl takes a picture of herself on her phone, is should she be arrested for possession of underage nudes? Like, that's... And that has happened. Um, and there's there's all sorts of weird ways in which that can be overly oppressive to women or to queer youth. Uh, and so, obviously, any feature involving, like, people's ability to take and share pictures of themselves runs into serious problems in practice if it's like you know older teenagers necessarily so by keeping it to younger children you avoid a lot of those murky areas well the, the the flip side of that though is that young kids are also the most likely to misunderstand or not really get the consequences of what the dialogue box is trying to tell them that's why the dialogue is worded to try to like the bathing suit area thing it's it's worded and aimed at younger kids but they're exactly the ones that are the least equipped to really truly understand the consequences and also probably the most likely to tap through them really quick. And the second side of that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, abuse and sort of grooming by older predators happens to 16 and 17 year olds all the time too. So uh, there's some people who are more expert in this field who have criticized Apple's targeting of saying most of the sort of uh, sex trafficking and grooming that, that is happening is not happening to nine year olds, but it's actually more of a problem in the older teens. And so the situation, like I think we all, because it's so horrific, we all tend to think of like, oh, what are the normal situations? A 17-year-old couple are like sending each other nude pictures and we don't want to get in the way of that because it's just normal growing up stuff, right? But what about the, you know, the much, much older sexual predator uh, either posing as a teen or not even posing as a teen, but, you know, grooming a 16 or 17-year-old? It's 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 just as bad as the, the, the child situation. It, there's there's so many variety of ways that these things can be abused and the the tool that we have to deal with this this you know the, we should get into the tech aspect of this for a second 
this is sort of just machine learning. Hey, this picture that either is being about to be received or about to be sent, does it look sexually explicit? Um, and that's just kind of a best guess. And that's the only tool we have. We don't have any other context. There is no machine learning trying to suss out, is this conversation between a predator and prey? Is this a conversation between two kids who are a couple? There's, as far as Apple has told us, there's none of that. It is literally only this one thing. Photo coming in, photo coming out. ML model, look at photo, tell me yes, no, is it sexually explicit? Such a blunt instrument that has no awareness of this other stuff. And it's hard enough to solve this problem because you know all the like the pictures of like, you know, someone's making uh, baking cookies and they take a picture of the bowl and it's sexually explicit because it's like, <laughs> looks, you know, like machine learning is not perfect. <laughs> this is straight up, hey, machine learning, here's an arbitrary picture. Tell me whether it's sexually explicit. And it's not super accurate. So we also have to account for all the cases where some poor kid or teenager is going to be faced with this dialogue, especially on an incoming picture and go, what did this person send me? And it's just like a picture of their dog, right? Because because their dog is determined to be sexually explicit, right? So the tech involved in this thing also makes it somewhat fraught. And I and I think like, you know, Marco, from your perspective, like, oh, it's it's easier for the older kids and harder for the younger in some aspects, but also in some aspects, it's the reverse. And like, you really just have to go through all the different scenarios. And it probably also helps to have experts in this field to like, you know, like I read a few things from of saying like, here's where the bulk of the problem is. And even though this is scarier, this happens. It's kind of like the whole thing of like, a, you're probably not going to be like murdered by a stranger. Most likely you're going to, especially if you're a woman, you're going to be murdered by, you know, you, this person you're in a relationship with or someone you know or your family member. It's depressing to think about, but like the fear of murder from a stranger, uh, you know, or a shark attack or whatever is so much out of proportion to what's actually going to kill you, which is usually much more man- mundane, right? And so I'm sure something like that also applies to all the child sexual abuse stuff and experts in the field would could probably help Apple better target this. But when your only tool is in this particular feature, this machine learning model, it's your options are limited. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's such a tough thing like you guys said you know you want to prevent this and in apple's case not only do you want to prevent it but you want to do it with some semblance of of privacy you know you don't want to be beaming these images to some server like google probably would i honestly don't know how they handle it um but you know you you don't want to be beaming these every image that you receive via iMessage to some server to verify whether or not it has csam in it um it's, it's it's a very difficult problem to solve and apple's made it more difficult by by insisting on on having it be as private as they possibly can which is in my opinion it, it's something they should be applauded for but it's challenging this gets us into the next feature it's like oh this is privacy preserving it doesn't break end-to-end encryption on messages right because it's only like obviously when a message arrives on your phone something has to decrypt it otherwise you can't read it right so uh, and if we do it on device, if we do the machine learning model on your device, like it was encrypted and then encrypted across the hallway and only right before it gets to your eyeballs when we have to encrypt it anyway, at that point, we'll do the machine learning thing. So it's privacy preserving, right? From one point of view, yes. And if if by what you mean of privacy is we didn't compromise the privacy in transit, no one snooping over the internet is going to be able to see that picture and grab it because it's end and encrypted. Another aspect of privacy is, hey, Apple, don't tell my parents about this. That's privacy too. If you're a kid not ratting you out to your parents is a form of privacy, right? And so, yes, the granted, the dialogue tells you it's going to do that and so on and so forth, but you're putting a lot of weight on people being able to correctly read and understand dialogues and, by the way, tap the right button, right? Previously, before this feature, 
there was no feature in messages that could potentially rat you out to your parents, right? With an errant click on a dialogue box, right? And now there is. And from a child's perspective, that's not privacy preserving at all, right? From an abstract kind of like, oh, random people snooping on internet routers can't see your picture. Great, that's great. But what I care about is my parents finding out. And now suddenly there's a possibility where that didn't happen before. And of course, on the parent side is, Oh, if a predator is trying to, you know, groom my 12-year-old, I really want to know about that, Apple. And so there's just so many conflicting stakeholders in this in this soup that it's very difficult to come up with a, you know, other than, again, the extreme position of like, you should just never do anything about this, right? And that seems like a clean solution until you think, oh, right, so we should do nothing about child sexual abuse? It's like, well, don't do this. Well, what should we do? Oh, now it's a hard question. I don't like it. Like, so Apple's trying to do something, and we'll get to why probably in a little bit, but anything you do is is fraud in some way. Well, and I think, I mean, let's get to that now. I, I think one of the things that I've learned listening to, you know, other people's podcasts about this, by the way, I can strongly recommend um, th- this week's episode of Decoder with Neil Patel. Uh, they, he had a couple of experts on in this area. And I guess, so this podcast, you know, Decoder, every, every, every episode of it is like, you know, some CEO or, you know, chief officer of some company, and they they mostly sound like they're going to be really boring. But then when I listen to them, it's like I, I learn something cool or it's much more interesting than I thought every single episode. Like literally every episode I've heard, which is most of them, it always ends up being worth it, even if it sounds like from the title and description, like it might not be very exciting or it might be a company you don't care about. Anyway, so this week's episode of, uh, of Decoder with Neil Patel, very, very good because uh, he, he had two experts on in this area and I learned a lot from that that I didn't hear in a lot of other places. Um, so I can strongly recommend listening to that. Uh, if you act, if you want to hear from people who actually know what they're talking about <laughs> in this area, uh, you will learn a lot, I promise. Um, but yeah, anyway, one of the big things that we've all learned, uh, at least I, I sure have, I didn't know this um, before this, is that almost all of the major you know tech cloud slash service companies are doing various forms of CSAM uh, scanning uh, and reporting and everything. Like every big company you can imagine, like Dropbox, you know, Facebook, Microsoft, like everyone's doing this. Um, and one of the reasons why they're doing this is because they have to by law in many countries, including in the U.S. And so I think part of the reason why Apple is doing this is that they have been facing increasing pressure from the law and and from law enforcement agencies uh, and there's there's a big history here of you know apple trying to make their devices very private and trying trying to give users lots of strong encryption tools to use for their data and and for their content um, while sometimes being at odds with what law enforcement wants to be available to them um, you know there there was the obviously the famous san bernardino um, shooter case uh, where you know the, the government wanted apple to unlock a phone and apple basically said no and tim cook made some terrible analogies about cancer but you know for the most part his argument once you got past those terrible analogies was fairly sound um in why they shouldn't do that um but anyway you know this part of what makes this complicated is that we in the tech business we operated for so long kind of skating by under the radar of most governments and legislatures they couldn't keep up with us. They didn't understand what we were doing, and they kind of left us alone to a large degree uh, for a very long time as we developed the tech business. And 
I think those days are long over now. Like the, now, governments have gotten a clue of of how powerful tech is. They don't like parts of it, and they intervene now it, to a much larger degree with legislation and pressure and, and legal you know threats or actions than they did in the past. So we as computer people are accustomed to tech companies being able to do whatever they wanted and us being able to have these devices that we could do whatever we wanted on and largely the law was not enforced or or didn't expand to cover tech stuff and so we got used to this freedom of like my device is mine the government can't tell me what my phone can and can't do or whatever that you know that era has been chipped away uh, over the last several years at least um and and now all the tech companies are under much greater pressure from the governments that they either operate in, directly in uh, or at least have to sell their products to for you know for healthy financial reasons. So there's going to be an increasing amount of government intrusion into tech. Some of that, like some of the antitrust proposals, which I know there was a big one today, we're probably not going to get to it today because it just happened and we have a lot of stuff to talk about today, but some of that stuff will be good. But a lot of this stuff will be, well, we have to comply with this law now. And some of those are going to be good laws that we agree with, and some of them are not. And it's going to get messy. It's already getting messy, and it's going to get messier as the tech companies have to like bow to pressure from or just uh, comply with the laws in their jurisdiction that they operate in. Are you sure about one correction? Are you sure about the thing where they have to scan? I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't have to scan in the U.S. What they have to do is report it if they find it, but they don't have to go looking for it. But there are... I believe that's right. But there are there are U.K. and E.U. laws that are coming down the pike that potentially will say you have to scan for it. So in some ways... I mean, well, let's just finish with the motivation for this thing. Some of the motivation might be that those laws are coming and you might have to comply with it anyway, so we should do it. Another part of the motivation is, um, and because, and by the way, all these features we're talking about are U.S. only at this point. Um, so even those, those are EU and U.K. laws, say, oh, those aren't relevant, but Apple will potentially expand this to other countries on a country-by-country country basis, according to them. Um, the other thing is that if the U.S. ever has a law like this, Apple, and this is what Apple says in their, in their interviews, and we'll have uh, Pan, uh, Matt Panzerino had a good interview with Apple's head of privacy about this. The Apple answer is, the reason we're doing this now is because we figured out a way to do it that is, quote unquote, privacy preserving, right? And we'll talk about the photo scanning and what their meaning of that is. But what they're saying is these other companies that are doing it, like Facebook and Microsoft and so on and forth, they do it the, you know, the brute force way of like, hey, we have access to all your photos that are stored on our servers. It's our servers. They're on our cloud services. We're just going to scan them there. And if we find anything, we're going to report it because the law in the U.S. is if you find it, you have to report it. But they're actively looking for it. They're scanning all your photos on the server side because they have them. Right? Apple could do that, too. But Apple apparently considers that not privacy preserving. And the Apple side of privacy really hits on this thing of saying, like, oh, it's much worse when you scan on the server side because it's more opaque and you can't tell what we're doing. And we could decide to just scan one person's thing because they're under scrutiny and all these sorts of other things. So we, you know, Apple is very big in their messaging to say that is not from Apple's perspective privacy preserving. What is more privacy preserving is if we do it on device and we'll talk about that feature in a second or whatever. But Apple's story is, hey, the reason we're doing this now is not because we're afraid of regulations coming down or whatever it's because we found a way to do it that is privacy preserving according to our definition of privacy preserving but surely part of apple's motivation is um the apple knows that whenever there is sort of an attack on apple's privacy preserving features like the san bernardino thing of the fbi or whatever saying apple this is a terrible terrorist and you need to let us have a backdoor in all your iphones because terrorism is bad right 
that's not a good situation to be in. And Apple has to make the difficult argument that like we're not in favor of terrorism, but we also don't want to put a backdoor on all our devices because the back there's no such thing as a backdoor that can only be used by the good guys, right? It's an argument that tech people understand, but that's you know hard to understand when emotions are high and like terrorism is involved. Same exact thing with child sexual abuse. If there's a child sexual abuse situation, you can say, Apple, uh, I know you said you don't want to include a backdoor for some reason, but child sexual abuse, you have to do it for the children, right? So features like this, where you can say, we found a way to do this without backdooring every single iPhone, is a great defense when the time comes when someone says, oh, uh, you know, just like in the movies, this kid has been kidnapped by the boogeyman and like some scenario that like never happens in real life. A stranger has kidnapped a beautiful, innocent child and you need to unlock this phone to get it an Apple. You need to let this happen or whatever. Features like this that hopefully catch the boogeyman before they kidnap a kid by detecting the fact that they're, you know, downloading CSAM and stuff done in a way that doesn't require putting in a backdoor that quote-unquote only the good guys can use or some other technical fantasy that doesn't actually exist is a great way for Apple to be prepared when, like Marco said, those regulations start coming uh, in the U.S. of like it's not a free-for-all anymore, right? It's probably part of the same reason that Facebook and Microsoft and Google and all those things do their own CSAM scanning server-side. Just say, look, we're already doing a thing that will help with this terrible situation. So please don't ask us to backdoor our encryption or please don't outlaw end-to-end encryption or all sorts of other much worse policies that will actually make everyone less safe but that are politically appealing to people who don't understand the tech. Yeah. So let's talk about iCloud Photo Library. Yep. So like I'd said, again, the summary is uh, that iOS and iPadOS will use new applications of cryptography to help limit the spread of CSAM online. While designing for user privacy, CSAM detection will help Apple provide valuable information to law enforcement on collections of CSAM and iCloud photos. So let's start off. uh, If you are not using iCloud photos, this does not apply to you. That's as simple as that. Now, Uh, before moving on from that point, that's another thing that a lot of people will bring up, which is, oh, well, then there's no point in this feature. Because all the nefarious child sex abuse predators will just read that and say, aha, I'm safe from Apple. I just won't use iCloud Photo Library, right? Um, Why would Apple announce the way to avoid this feature? It's totally pointless. All we'll ever do is catch innocent people because no guilty person will ever use it. Uh, If you look at the, the CSAM scanning that like Facebook and all these other big companies do, and you see how many instances of it they catch every year, I think the Facebook number was 20 million reported last year. Oh my god. You and 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 it's not like it's a secret information that Facebook does this scanning, right? So you would think, well, if Facebook announces to the world that they do this scanning, why would anyone who's, you know, a, a child sexual predator use Facebook? People <laughs> do things that don't make a lot of sense, but the you know, like it's we'll get to this in a little bit saying, I just won't use Facebook, I just won't use Google, I just won't use Apple, I just won't use iCloud Photo Library. Like, yes, in theory, if you were the world's biggest mass criminal mastermind, you could, like, avoid all these things, right? But practically speaking, it's very difficult to essentially avoid using the internet and the major players on the internet. And practically speaking, 20 million cases caught by Facebook shows that they don't avoid it. They do it. <laughs> and we catch them. And... That's why features like this, even though there's there's a way to work around them, still have value in catching criminals. Uh, if you caught zero of them per year, we should have to rethink this. But 20 million per year at Facebook 
is a big number. And by the way, Apple, which prior to these features was not actively doing anything to catch this stuff, reported something like 200 last year. And who knows how they found those 200, right? Maybe they were reported or something like that. But when Facebook is doing 20 million and Apple is doing 200, I feel like that shows that Apple needs to do more. <laughs> and so here is that, thus these features that we're talking about. So here's this next feature. So yes, it's only if you use iCloud Photo Library. If you don't use iCloud Photo Library, none of this stuff ever happens. But that doesn't mean that no one will ever be caught by this. Right. So I tried to do some deeper reading into the mechanics of how this works. And I did some, but my eyes glazed over for some of it. I didn't get through it all. So I've, I have tried to do some research and I have failed. So call me John Syracuse. But um, we will try to cite what we can and people who have done a little more research than us. Uh, and certainly, like you know, Marco's disclaimer earlier, you know, I am not a cryptographic expert. In fact, a lot of it is way above my head. So I'm trying my darndest to understand this a little better, but uh, I, I need a little more time to get it 100% right. But with that said, uh, mostly quoting Gruber's really good summary. Uh, so for iCloud Photos, uh, the CSAM detection for iCloud Photos only applies to images that are being sent to iCloud Photo Library. Like I said earlier, if you don't use iCloud Photo Library, no images on your devices are fingerprinted. Photos are, co are compared on device to a list of known CSAM from NCMEC, N-C-M-E-C, -E which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So let me unpack that sentence. So NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they do keep a database or repository of some sort, if I understand correctly, of CSAM. And they are the only organization, they're the only people that are legally allowed to do that here in the United States. And that's because they're the people in charge of trying to prevent it and fight it. And so my understanding is Apple, and I'm filling in a couple of blanks here, but Apple will provide some sort of tool to NCMEC to scan all their files in their database. These are things that they know are, are bad. It's this known, you know, sexually explicit material, child sex, sex assault material, whatever. Um, they will scan all that and that will generate a bunch of hashes. So basically a bunch of numbers. And they'll be post-processed a little bit by Apple, the hashes that is, not the photos. And that generates a whole bunch of hashes. Again, so these are numbers uh, that Apple can then use to compare your photos to. So the idea is, and I'm dramatically oversimplifying, but let's say there's a a CSAM picture of whatever, doesn't matter what the specifics are, and it, and it yields a number of 42. Now, obviously, these numbers are way longer than that, but let's just say it yields the number 42. Well, if I had a, a picture on my phone that also yielded 42 as the hash, as that unique number, and it should do this, by the way, even if I make it grayscale, even if I you know twist it upside down or whatever the case may be, because it's doing some semantic processing and some other things. But one way or another, if, if I end up with a photo that, that ends up with a hash of 42, and NCMEC has provided a photo and scanned it using Apple's tool and provided the hash of 42 to Apple, then, uh-oh, we've got a match. And things will carry on from there. But before I go on any further... And, and, when, and when you say a match, by the way, you're not saying this is a similar picture. This is a picture of a similar thing. It is literally the same picture. Plus or minus, like you said, zooming, cropping, grayscale, blurring, like... But basically, like, what it's trying to say is this is literally the same picture. Like, it's not like saying, oh, this is a picture of an apple. It's like, no, this is the exact picture of an apple that's in the CSAM database, right? It is right. 
the exact picture. So there is a there are a finite number of pictures that this is trying to detect. It is the database provided by NCMEC. I don't know how many pictures it is, but that's it. Those are all the pictures that it's ever going to find. It's not going to find a picture that's not in that database. And if it finds one, it's not saying this is a similar picture or a picture of the same thing or even a picture of the same person or anything like that. It is saying this is literally that picture. So it is extremely limited in that if it's not on the NCMEC database, it will never be detected if this system is working correctly, right? Uh, which if that disclaimer, we'll get to in a little bit. But that's what this thing is attempting to do. Right. This is in contrast, mind you, to the messages stuff, the iMessage stuff we were talking about earlier, where that is trying to say, oh, that looks like a body part covered up by a bathing suit. That is something we should figure, you know, that that's something we should alert you about. This is different. This is exactly what John said. This is not, oh, that looks like a, a body part covered by a bathing suit. It's no, no, no. It's this picture matches whatever picture is in that CSAM database. And Apple doesn't get the CSAM database because not only do they not want it, I'm quite sure, but it is illegal for them to have it. All they are getting is the ha or the, the, the list of hashes generated by it, presumably by some tool that Apple provides. So the thing is, though, you just one match isn't enough. Nothing happens if there's one match. There is some threshold. Nobody knows what that threshold is. That's probably for several different reasons. Uh, probably so, you know, like if we all knew that the threshold was 20, then some nefarious individual could keep 19 photos on their phone and they'd be fine. But we don't know if the threshold is 20 or two or 2 million or whatever. So one way or another, one match isn't enough to trigger any action. There is this th threshold, and we don't know what that threshold is, but eventually that threshold will be reached. And, and again, I'm totally making this up, but just to make discussion easier, let's say it's 20. And so once 20 pictures are hit, then at that point, the cryptographic protections that are built around these, um, these I forget what they call them off the top of my head now. Safety vouchers. Like Thank that's, you. That, that's actually, before we even get to the threshold board, that's an important point. When, when one of these matches is found, is one of these safety vouchers is sent to Apple, but Apple itself can't decrypt that to do anything with it until the threshold is met. Like there's a bunch of cryptographic stuff, which like Casey said, is probably over all of our heads, uh, that makes that possible. It's using cryptography to say, okay, uh, when we find a hit, We'll send the safety voucher to Apple, but Apple cannot do anything with that safety voucher. They can't tell what the original picture was. They can't tell which picture it matched. They can't do anything with it until the threshold is reached. And when the threshold is reached, then at that point, Apple has 20 safety vouchers from this person's phone. And at that point, then because of the cryptographic stuff, then they can actually decode them and say, now we need to actually look at these pictures. And so that brings us to the next step. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like the world's most complicated and worst raid array. <laughs> like, like we need we need a certain number of these before we can decrypt any of them which honestly like from a technical point of view that's a really cool idea like that, that I, I, it's very clever they do a bunch of other privacy preserving stuff that again if you can understand the cryptographic stuff where they will intentionally send like false uh, seed it with false information so there's no way to sort of there's no way to sort of pick out people who are potentially bad actors until the threshold is reached because just because you see some like it, it's they do a bunch of stuff where to try to be privacy preserving because as we've learned, even just from metadata, just of knowing that like safety vouchers are arriving could be uh, some information that could be used to determine something. So they intentionally seed in some information to, to add noise to the thing. But the whole point is even Apple, even under like threat of law, again, if they someone subpoenaed said, we demand that you decrypt these safety vouchers and show what these pictures are. Apple literally can't do it because of math until the threshold is reached. 
Right, which is which is very cool. And again, that twenty number that we're using that's that's made up. We have no idea what the threshold is. So the but the threshold is designed such that, and now this is a quote from Apple, so to provide an extremely high level of accuracy and ensures that less than one in one trillion chance per year of incorrectly flagging a given account. That now, mind you, that's not incorrectly flagging a photo, incorrectly flagging an entire account. So if you're to believe Apple. Whatever that threshold is, be it 20 or 200 or 2 million or whatever, there is less than a one in one trillion chance that any one of the three of us or anyone else for that matter will have an oops and get our account flagged, even if it shouldn't be. So this this thing reveals some information about this because we just got done saying like the whole point of this algorithm is to try to tell, is this the same picture as that? Accounting for things like zooming, cropping, rotating, color changing, stuff like that. So when I say, oh, accounting for those changes, it's clear that it's not a byte-for-byte comparison because that would work on any of those things, right? Obviously, there is some amount of, I don't know if you call it machine learning, but some amount of processing that is done to try to determine if this picture is the quote-unquote same picture as that one, even if it's been converted to black and white, even if it's been zoomed a little bit, even if the crop is slightly different, even if a new section of it was blurred out, even if it has some words stamped on it, you know what I mean? Like... A human could tell if they're the same picture, but for computers, it's harder to sell. Like a human can tell, oh, this is the same picture. It's just rotated a little bit and zoomed. Like we can do that pretty easily, but computers have a harder time with it, right? So this one in a trillion chance thing and the fact that there's a threshold at all is telling us this algorithm is not 100% accurate when it comes to determining if this picture is the same as the other one. Because if it was, you wouldn't need a threshold, right? It's not like they're trying to say you're allowed to have some number of CSAM on your on your computer. That's not what they're saying with this threshold. Like, oh, it's okay if you have a little, but if you have a lot, we're going to report you to the law. It's because this algorithm is not 100% accurate, right? And so to make it, and, and, you know, obviously having a false positive is really bad. So to try to avoid a false positive, Apple has done the math and said, we're going to make this threshold and we're going to make it. So it's really, really bad, hard to have a false positive. Um, and there's, there's two strategies in that. One, the consequences of a false positive are could be devastating to the person involved in it. You do not want to be reported for to law enforcement for having CSAM when you have absolutely none because of some stupid algorithm, right? That is super harmful, and Apple would never want to do that, right? And the second thing is, since the algorithm is not 100% accurate, Apple wants to actually know that they like it's in apple's interest to to try to to make sure that you uh, and also to get the most egregious offenders right you really like the whole point of this is is to catch the people doing the bad thing i'm gonna i don't know much about the field but i'm going to say it's probably unlikely that that people who are doing this have one picture right (laughs) they probably have more than one so we again we don't know what the threshold is but by putting the threshold like this hopefully they can avoid any false positives and also pretty much catch everybody who's doing this. Again, it depends on the threshold. If the threshold is a million photos, maybe this is not a great feature. Uh, but if the threshold is 10, you're probably going to catch all the people, right? <laughs> like, I, again, with like, oh, why don't they just keep nine? Or is the, if they we found out the secret threshold, people could just keep one under. See also Facebook catching 20 million people. Um, it, like, that's not the way criminality works. And there is no system that can only, that can catch the master criminals, right? Because they just won't use the internet and they'll be safe. They'll live in a shack in the woods. Like there's always some out, right? We're just trying to do something which is better than nothing in this case. So, so yeah, so the unreliability of this needs to be a factor. Like the threshold, that's the way to think about this, right? Um, and Apple's calculations presumably are, are well-founded, but um, 
uh, the reason a lot of people are, well, there's lots of reasons people are nervous about this, which we'll start enumerating now, I think. But one of them is that this is not, uh, that it is an algorithm. And despite the fact that Apple says it's one in a trillion, it's not potentially reassuring. Now, the next backstop on that is when you hit the threshold and Apple can finally decrypt the safety vouchers, it doesn't report you to the police at that point. What happens at that point is Apple has someone whose job is terrible, actual, actual human beings then have to look at the photos and do a final human-powered confirmation that, yes, these really are the same photos, right? That these really are, I mean, not the same, but these really are, you know, that they, they, they are CSAM and not a picture of someone's dog, right? Human being has to make that determination. That's not a fun job. Um, but that is the backstop and saying, okay, at that point, after a human looks at it, after it's passed the threshold, it's done all the things, once it passes the threshold, they get, they, I think they get like a, a lower resolution version of it. They don't even get the full version of it, but they get a l- enough of it so, so a human can look at it because Apple can finally decode it now because it passed the threshold. They look at it. They make a determination. This is, by the way, after the one in a trillion. After the one in a trillion, then a human looks at it. So even if you f- fall into the one in a trillion thing, if it turns up not be a one in a trillion, but one in a hundred million, then a human has to look at it. They make the determination. If it turns out it's CSAM, they report you to the authorities because it's U.S. law that they have to do that anyway, Right. Because now they have found it, a human has confirmed it, and they report it. Uh, un- unfortunately for Apple, even this is not particularly reassuring to a lot of people because anyone who's gone through App Review knows that ostensibly a human looks at every app in App Review, and we've all <laughs> seen rejections from App Review that prove that having a human look at something is not necessarily a guarantee that something sane or logical will happen. Now, you would hope that the people doing this job have a higher threshold of reporting someone to the police for child sexual abuse material (laughs) than rejecting your app because they think you didn't put a button in the right place. I would also hope they don't have such a volume to deal with. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit because that actually might not be true. Uh, Given, given the, the, uh, how little they detected so far and what might be lurking in there, it may actually be a terrible situation, but like this is not Apple. Well, it's, it's not entirely Apple's fault, but there is a perception that, uh, you know, especially within tech community that's thinking about this from a tech and privacy perspective, that that doesn't actually make me feel that much better because my experience with humans at Apple is not reassuring in this regard. Now, I think that's probably just a sort of gut reaction to past experiences that I hope has almost no bearing on this situation um, because it seems like uh, app review is complicated. A uh, human being looking at a picture and determining whether it's child sexual abuse material seems less complicated to me. It seems more an open shut type of thing. <laughs> I don't think a picture of your dog is going to be accidentally flagged as CSAM by an inattentive reviewer. I really hope not, right? Um, but so, one of you know, so why does this feature make people upset? Why was this feature getting most of the press and complaints uh, aside from the messages feature, right? above and beyond the messages one? Why is this the one that that bugs everybody? Um, I think part of it is that it applies to uh, adults. It's not just kids because, you know, who's on the internet arguing about this? Probably not 12-year-olds, but it's a bunch of adults. And this one does apply to adults if you use iCloud Photo Library, right? So that's one aspect. The other ones I just talked about are like, well, Apple says it's one in a trillion, but who knows what it really is? It's not a deterministic algorithm or it's not a it's not a algorithm that anyone really understands. So it's some form of machine learning and it's kind of fuzzy and it's not 100 percent accurate. Thus, the thresholds that makes me nervous and the humans as the backstop don't make me feel better. So there's some worry about being flagged unjustly, despite all of the backstops that Apple's put into it. 
Um, one of the more fundamental underlying discomforts with this entire system is that it feels, I'm not going to say unjust, un-American, not in keeping with the American justice system because people have some expectation and, you know, part of the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment or whatever, that like in, in the U.S. anyway, there is a sense that if you are looking into something in my life, that there has to be some reason. I'm suspected of a crime, so you look at my bank records to see if I've been laundering money. You know, uh, like I, I, you think I have stolen merchandise because there's a, you know, someone who matches my description caught on a security camera stealing something from a store, so you have a warrant to search my house, right? That is generally the way our criminal justice system works. That if there is some suspicion that you have done a thing, you have to convince a judge that we think this person might do this thing, therefore we need to search something, and you get a search warrant and you look into it, right? The other side of that is where you just watch everybody all the time. And that way, if anyone does anything wrong, you catch them. And that's what we call surveillance. And this feature does not have the concept of probable cause or any of these type of things. It's surveillance. It is watching every single picture on every single person's phone all the time. Now, Apple isn't the U.S. government. The, you know, there it's not the same situation at all. But from a sort of emotional feel and justice perspective, it feels like I am now being surveilled, that everybody is being surveilled, that, we, that everything we're doing is being watched just in case we ever do something criminal. Again, the messages feature is exactly the same, but it's like, oh, that's kids. Only It only applies to kids. It doesn't apply to me. I don't have to worry about that. But every photo that is sent and received by people who under the age limit of that messages feature, every single photo has that ML thing run against it if you've opted in, right? And same thing with this thing. If you're using iCloud Photo Library, every single one of your photos going into iCloud Photo Library has a supply to it. And for some people, especially people who are sort of security conscious and looking at, or privacy conscious and looking at this through the, uh, the broader lens of, you know, what seems fair and just in the technological world, this doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to know that you are constantly being surveilled just in case you do something wrong. And everyone trots all this stuff. Well, so if you're not doing child sexual abuse stuff, you have nothing to worry about. If you, if you have nothing to hide, it's okay for the East Germans to listen in on your phone calls, right? <laughs> like, again, Apple is not the government. It is not a, a direct comparison, but it feels similar. People don't like the idea that they're being surveilled. Setting aside the fact that, like, if you know, the CSAM scanning is going on for every photo uploaded to Facebook, every photo put into to Google Drive, every photo put into the Microsoft OneDrive, like, that's also surveillance because it's they're not discriminating. They're not saying, "Oh, this person might be a criminal. We're going to scan them." They just scan everybody's because that's what computers do. But it feels like surveillance to people, and from and this gets back to the app argument of like, "Oh, we didn't want to do this until we could do it in a privacy-preserving way." But by doing it in this quote-unquote privacy-preserving way, it still feels like surveillance. No, they're not scanning it on the server, but they're still scanning every picture for everybody. They're just doing it on the client. And Apple can't even make the argument of like, oh, we can't even see your photos, because they can. Because Apple doesn't do end-to-end encryption on their, their like iCloud backups and iCloud photo library. Like, like it, in the end, if you back up to iCloud, Apple can get at those backups. And so some people are making the argument that this feature is a precursor to Apple pr finally providing end-to-end encryption for iCloud photo backups. Again, more arguments about like, well, the criminals just won't do iCloud backups. Like, you know, 
they will and they do because they're people and some of them won't, but most of them will, right? Because it's just law of averages. Anyway, if this is a precursor to end-to-end encrypting iCloud backups, great. But if it's not, it doesn't feel any more privacy-preserving, and I say feel specifically here, than scanning on the server side. Apple's argument is that it is more privacy-preserving because the scanning happens on your device and everyone gets the same OS with the same database of NCMEC images and you can prove that cryptographically and you can look at the bytes and you can be clear that we're not targeting an individual and so on and so forth. But in the end, Apple is still saying, hey, every single person who has an iPhoto who uses iCloud Photo Library, your device that you hold in your hand is looking at every single one of your photos. And as uh, Ben Thompson pointed out in his thing uh, today, a lot of people feel like their own phone, quote unquote, spying on them, is somehow feels worse than you know, sending it to a server where it gets scanned by Apple, right? Because you feel like you're being betrayed by the physical thing you hold in your hand. Like, even though it's not actually worse, it's the same thing, right? And in many in, in many ways, it is more secure for it to be happening on device and not, you know, not sending it unencrypted across the wire or letting Apple see it or all those other things, setting aside the iCloud backup issue. But it feels worse. And this is a lot of Apple's problem with this feature, that every part of it, Apple is making the argument that this is preserves your privacy better, but to the average person, when you explain it to them, it feels worse than the alternatives that Apple says are worse. Uh, but in the end, all of them are essentially some form of surveillance by your device, um, which is common practice and is the way that we use computers to try to catch criminals in this particular situation, which I don't know. Again, I, you know, people who don't like this, say, OK, what should we do instead? Well, there's always the people who say, let's do nothing. Um, I'm not in favor of that solution. <laughs> like. <laughs> and neither is pretty much anyone else in the tech industry. And if those laws come through that it says Apple has to scan, they need a solution. And if you needed a solution, this one is in keeping with Apple's values, which is we'd rather do it on device. We don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to compromise our end-to-end encryption where it exists. In theory, Apple, this leaves Apple free to do end-to-end encrypted iCloud backups at any point in the future while still being able to say to government regulators, hey, we're still scanning for CSAM, right? You can't make us unencrypt our end-to-end encrypted backups because that's not stopping us from doing the thing you want us to do, uh, you know, save the children, all that stuff. But from a feel perspective, I don't think this feels great to a lot of people. I mean, for for me, I, the more I sit with this and the more we learn about some of the details, I'm put a little bit more at ease about it. Um, you know, and, and you know, the, the more I think about a lot of it, you know, it's tricky because as you mentioned earlier, like, CSAM is a special case, both morally for most people, um, but also legally in most jurisdictions. That you know, normally you can take a picture of, in in most cases, whatever you want, and it's generally not going to be illegal for you to even possess that picture. You know, there's things like copyright infringement that could be a problem, or you know, other other issues. But like for the most part, most types of data are not themselves like totally illegal to even possess. Whereas this is, and I think the the more life experience or perspective you have, the more reasonable you think that is. Like when when if you know at all how horrific this kind of stuff can be, uh, then yeah, you, you kind of realize why it should be illegal. Uh, it's you know to even possess it. So Apple then is in a tough position because they sell you know a billion devices that have really good encryption built in and really good privacy built in and it gives their customers the ability 
to do a lot of illegal things to great effect. A lot of that you can you can you know look the other way and say, well, you know, it's out of our hands. It's it's not our problem, and you know the good outweighs the bad. Uh, but there is this like there's always this big exception that what if what if you enable child abuse? That's that's a pretty horrible thing. Uh, and in this case, if you look at the way they design this feature, you know, we'll talk about potential future motives in a minute. But if if you look at the way they design this feature, they didn't design it to prevent the iPhone camera from capturing CCM images. They didn't prevent other apps from transmitting them back and forth. You know, they they like you know we, we mentioned earlier about the the iMessage feature. I, mean, I think a lot of kids are going to be using other services to do that kind of thing, not just iMessage. But anyway, they did roughly the bare minimum they could do to keep themselves out of hot water with the CSAM scanning feature. Like the iMessage, the, the iMessage thing, that's, that's a little bit different. But they what they did was keep themselves out of possession of data that's illegal to possess. So in that way, they clearly did a very narrow thing here. Well, they're not keeping themselves out of possession because surely they possess tons of it now and they're not going to find that tons of it unless it is uploaded or downloaded from iCloud Photos. Do we know if they're going to be retroactively scanning existing libraries? I would assume they are. They won't be, They won't be because that's the whole point. They're not doing server-side scanning. Now, they will scan it if it comes to or from a phone, which may allow them to scan it. But, like, I mean, if it goes off the end because you're optimizing storage and you pull it back in. But the, Apple has been very explicit that they are not scanning it server-side. Eventually, they'll probably get it all because if it's in an iCloud photo library and you load up a new phone or even just scroll a whole bunch or, you know, like things go back and forth from iCloud photo library all the time to the phone. And every time something goes back and forth to any device, a Mac, a phone, I don't know if it's a Mac, this is just iPad OS and iPhone OS. But anyway, um, anytime it transfers, it is then scanned on that device. But they're explicitly not saying, oh, and by the way, we're going to go through our back catalog of all, the, of all these uh, iCloud uh uh, phone backups that we have access to because we have the keys and scan all the photos, right? So Apple will undoubtedly continue to be in possession of CSAM just as they are at this moment. But going forward, they are trying to catch any collection of it that starts to exist or that is newly downloaded to a new phone or a new iPad or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. But anyway, I, I think, you know, they they are clearly trying to, for the most part, in in most ways, still let your device be your device. In this case, they are they are basically mostly protecting themselves from being in possession of data that's illegal to possess. And so I'm I'm a little bit heartened. Did we figure out if that's a word or not? <laughs> it is. I don't know why you doubt this. It is. All right. I'm a little bit heartened that they've done this in a relatively narrow way. You know, there's lots of ways that governments have applied pressure to tech companies that that i think are are a little bit more overreaching like for instance uh try scanning a picture of a hundred dollar bill uh or any you know euro banknote or you know any any modern banknote try scanning it and open it up in photoshop see how far you get Uh, oh that that actually brings up the other big objection to this which is the slippery slope thing having to do with governments um so we just described the feature it's the nickmec database it's the comparison against things one of the things people jumped on really early was like First of all, how does stuff get into that NCMEC database? Because if it's totally opaque and Apple doesn't even get to know what's in there, you're just trusting NCMEC? What if someone, you know, from some company says, here, put in this picture of our, you know, copyrighted image into your NCMEC database. So then we'll know if anyone shares our copyrighted image or whatever. Uh, and the second thing is, 
that's just one database. Next, it's going to be a database of anything, you know, movie companies will be putting in databases of movies and trailers, and we're just going to find every, you know, it's going to all going to be copyright infringement and patents and all sorts of this stuff. It'll just be like Apple will just take anyone's database and just compare against and all this stuff. There's lots of slippery slope arguments there. Apple, for what it's worth, has explicitly said, no, we're, Apple itself is not adding stuff to the database. It's not letting anyone else add stuff to the database. The Nick entire purpose in life is not to allow random companies like Disney to add pictures of Iron Man to the database because they don't want people sharing pictures of Iron Man. Like, it is very, very narrowly defined, right? The second part of it, and Apple says that they'll, you know, uh, like, that, that's the intended function of this feature, right? Second part is, okay, well, but the government can make Apple do all sorts of things. And in fact, the government can make Apple not tell people about it. Uh, so... What if the government makes Apple add pictures of secret like Pentagon documents that they don't want to be leaked or whatever? And we need we want them to be leaked because they show like, you know, abuses in Abu Ghraib or whatever. Right. The government can make Apple do that. And the government can make Apple not say anything about it. All right. So the solution to the government being able to force companies to do things that we don't like uh, when you live in ostensibly a democracy, plus or minus uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering and all the other terrible things that afflict this country is that we change the government and the go- the government changes the laws and we have things in the constitution that uh, that prevent you know like there was a whole big argument about how the fourth amendment would prevent any sort of evidence uh you know gathered in this way from being admissible in court or whatever but anyway in the u.s in theory i'm being buried under a storm of asterisks here like they're just falling from the sky <laughs> just burying me under a pile of asterisks yeah i know but but anyway In the U.S., in theory, we have a mechanism to stop that from happening. But what it comes down to is, yes, companies are subject to the government that that runs the country in which they operate. And the U.S. is subject to the U.S. government. And the U.S. government has a bunch of terrible laws. And it's very difficult to change those terrible laws. And we know all that. But that is that situation. But then one step up from that is, okay, let's say you're okay with the U.S. and you think they're not going to do anything too terrible. What about in China? Well, I have some bad news, as we've discussed in the past. Um, uh, Apple has a China problem and the world has a China problem. And part of that problem is that China already has access to everything that Apple does in China because China has made Apple put all their stuff in Chinese data centers where China holds the keys, right? (laughs) Um, That's not a problem Apple can solve. The only way they can solve it is say we're either going to be in China and and do what Chinese law dictates, which is essentially give China access to everything, which is what the situation currently is, or we don't do business in China, which is some other co- what some other companies have chosen to do. Um, so that's the conversation you need to have there, which is like, first of all, China doesn't need to stick things in the NICMEC database. They, they have access to everything because they're an oppressive authoritarian regime, right? They've already done that. They probably have way better systems than this for you know keeping track of the dissidents and doing all terrible things that they do, right? That's terrible. That's also not a problem Apple can solve, and it's not made worse by this feature. So like so many things, if you don't trust your government to not do oppressive authoritarian things, nothing the technology company that operates in your in your country can do will fix that. Like Apple can't fix the U.S. government except for through lobbying and all the other ways they can fix it. But again, as they're all the asterisks that are falling down from the sky from Marco. Um <laughs> <laughs> the, the government problems need to have, unfortunately, government solutions. Um, so this the, the reason technology is so difficult to regulate is because the, the, the issues are complicated and nuanced and there's lots of, you know, we have to do this because terrorism or save the children or whatever. So we need backdoors and all on encryption and we continue to fight that as tech savvy voters and consumers. But the, 
uh, the 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 I think the most salient point here is that regardless of your dim view of the U.S. government, and I think we all share that, um, we can say that uh, in the U.S., our ability to change what the government can and can't do is way better than in China. <laughs> and as we said at the top of this program, this policy is only in effect in the U.S. So if you see this and you think this is terrible, the government can make Apple do all sorts of sneaky things. A, I would say, yeah, the government could already make Apple do all sorts of sneaky things <laughs> and and force them not to tell you about it. This has already happened and will continue to happen. And if you don't like that, vote for people who want to change that. That's the only stupid tool we have to change that. No, you know, there is no complaining on Twitter about Apple policy that is going to change that. Because Apple, I believe me, Apple does not like being told to do something by the government and also being told that they can't tell anyone about it. Apple doesn't like that either, right? So if you don't like that, and if you feel bad about that, let's change the laws related to that. And again, in theory, the Constitution is some form of a backstop against the most egregious offenses because our certain rights are, are very difficult to change without a constitutional amendment and yada, 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 right? And then if you're worried that Apple is going to let China do whatever they want. They already are. Sorry. Right. And if you're worried that Apple's going to let some other country do whatever they want, this eventually comes down to this, the foundation of trust that we've talked about when talking about many features in the past, which is in the end, you have to trust your OS vendor or your platform vendor with something because no matter what they do, like, oh, we have end to end encryption. Somebody writes the app that implements end to end encryption. And if you don't trust the person who's writing the app, even if it's open source, oh, I trust them because I can see the source code. Oh, really? You audited all those lines of your of the source code? If that was true, a heartbleed wouldn't have happened, right? In the end, you have to have some baseline level of trust of the person who is implementing your encrypted system, even if you agree with all of the, you know, the way it's supposed to work. That's what it always comes down to. Do you trust Apple to not secretly put pictures of Mickey Mouse and Iron Man into the database and find people who are illegally copying, like, movie trailers or something stupid, Right. You either do or you don't. Uh, and if you don't trust them, who do you trust? Buy your phone from them instead, right? That's what it comes down to. Because yes, Apple, like no matter what their encryption things is, in the end, the messages app eventually has access to all of your messages. The mail app eventually, because it shows you them on the screen. Like they're in memory on the phone. Like the phone could be doing whatever it wants. Like it doesn't matter about all this encryption and provable security or whatever. Something has to decrypt them and send the information to your eyeballs. And the people who write that <laughs> software... You have to have some amount of trust in them because somebody has to have access to it. And it's not just you. It's the person who writes that app. And that's Apple in this case. So if you find yourself spiraling down a trust hole here and being like, I can't trust Apple to run this CSAM system because they could do anything. Yes, they can do anything. China can do anything. The U.S. government can do almost anything, right? That's true. But at each one of those stages, it's like, what can I do to change the government in China? What can I do to change the government in the U.S.? And do I trust Apple to do something that's in my interest? On the plus column for Apple, they have proven in the past that they will resist U.S. government pressure to do a thing that would be essentially a PR win. Oh, Apple was so great. They unlocked that terrorist phone for the FBI. Apple refused to do that, despite the fact that to many people it made them look bad. Oh, does Apple side with the terrorists? Do you do you enjoy, you know, these uh, the San Bernardino killer? Is that your, your number one customer? You want to protect that person? Because there is a higher principle. So if you're worried that Apple would never do that, they have at least once, and probably more times, proven that they will do that. If you're worried that Apple's being forced by the government to do things and not say anything about them, yeah, that's probably happening. But 
nothing about what Apple implements can really prevent that. You could say, oh, if Apple didn't implement this feature, then they wouldn't have to bow to government pressure. No, because once the government can make you do stuff and not say anything about it, there are very few limits on that. Like, And again, uh, iCloud backups are not end-to-end -end encrypted. So already the government can probably force Apple to give them that information and not say anything about it, right? So I kind of understand the argument that tech companies shouldn't implement features like these because it makes it easier for the government to demand that they do things, but I don't really buy into it too much because if your problem is that the government can make a company do a thing, the solution is not tech companies should never implement features because government can make them use the features for nefarious purposes. The, the solution is it shouldn't be legal for the government to use these to make, make companies do these things for nefarious purposes. And in general, it's not except for in these quote unquote extreme circumstances, 9-11 never forget, where these laws can be used and abused to make companies do things because of terrorism, because of child sexual abuse and so on and so forth. And then finally, as we've been discussing the whole time, sometimes as they say at the beginning of the show, certain crimes are particularly heinous, right? Like, I'm not getting the quote right. That's Law and Order SVU for people who are not getting the, the reference I'm trying to make. Sometimes there is what is the worst of the worst of the worst thing that society treats differently for reasons we all agree on. And in those particular cases, I think it is worth it to try to do something rather than doing nothing because you think the nothing will somehow protect you against an oppressive government. Slightly. And I don't think it will. So as with the messages feature, if this feature works as designed, I think it is a reasonable compromise and is way, way, way better than the nothing that Apple had been doing before this. And I think it's way, way, way better than what governments might eventually force them to do if they hadn't done this. Yes, exactly. Yeah, my first reaction to this was, this is garbage. And the more I read on it, the the more my react my reaction and my thoughts on it are are calmed down. I still, I I I think maybe John, you're you're slightly, I don't know, underselling is the best word I can come up with. But I, I understand. I really, really, really understand. Certainly after 2016 through 2020, I understand better than I ever have that. We, it is easy for us to lose control. Well, this, this already sounds bad, but it's easy for us to lose control of our government. And by that, I mean mm -hmm. rational humans. And so when one cannot fundamentally trust your own government, which has probably been true my entire life, but it's only felt true in the last five-ish years, uh, particularly 2016 through 2020, um, when one can't trust their own government, then it makes it hard to trust that they won't compel Apple to do this. And ultimately, as much as Apple will say, no, we will refuse, we will not capitulate, we will never allow this to happen. Even with that said, ultimately, when it comes down to it, the government has guns and bombs. And not that they would literally bomb Apple, but like if the government really went that haywire and really wanted to win this argument, they will win the argument. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the reason I think everyone's worried, including me, although by and large, I'm not, I'm not too upset about this anymore. But the reason anyone, everyone is worried is that before, there was no real mechanism that we knew of to scan your photos for content, justified or not, that someone has deemed inappropriate. Well, there was, though, because Apple has access to all your iCloud backups. If the government came to you and said, hey, we want you to scan all of Casey Liss's photos, they could totally do it right now without this feature. 
Like that's what I'm saying. Like this doesn't yeah, add okay, any. That's fair. That's fair. Like, you know what I mean? And that's that's where we get to the end and uh, backup thing of like of closing that door. But right now that door is not closed. Like so, like I, I understand the argument. Like if you add a feature, it makes it easier for the government to make you do a thing. But the thing that the government would make you do, they can already make Apple do, and they have been able to make. And in fact, they have actually done it. I'm pretty sure the government has used law to get access to people's iCloud backups, right? And with or without letting Apple tell you that it's happening, right? They do it all the time. That's already technically possible, right? The unlocking of the phone is like, oh, we just want to see what's on that phone. But if it was in the iCloud backup, we would have had access to it already. So, like, I, I, I know what people are saying of like, if you implement this feature, the government can force you to do it. But I, like, the solution to that, like, I don't think this strategy of we'll just never implement features that could be abused by the government is a good one because almost any feature can be abused by the government, and lots of useful features can be abused by the government. The solution to government abuse is government like is you know the, part of the reason the constitution exists and the whole argument that i saw in some article or whatever of like would the fourth amendment al- allow you to submit as evidence in any kind of criminal trial uh information gained by forcing apple to scan things like you know secretly or whatever and like you know like that's that's the reason we have courts and the constitution and our laws and the fourth amendment to try to protect against those kind of abuses, to try to protect against the government saying, oh, we're just going to, the government's going to listen to everyone's phone calls. Oh, yeah. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yep. Uh, 9-11, never forget. Um, (laughs) Like, (laughs) that the, this is a problem. But when I see this problem, I don't think this is a problem that needs to be solved by tech companies. It's not. It's, It's a problem that tech companies to live with. And I get that argument, but it really just sort of makes me even more hardened to fight against stupid laws, stupid politicians that appoint stupid judges through stupid processes that don't respect the will of the people. Like, there's plenty of problems here, but the way I feel like attacking them is not through the tech stack. And living within those limits, I feel like this specific feature of the NCMEC database and scanning for CSAM on devices against a collection of data that the government already has access to is not a feature that that worsens the situation. Like, I feel like it does acknowledge that, yes, our government is bad because it doesn't give the government access to anything they didn't already have access to. I don't, I, I, I do see what you're saying. I don't think I entirely agree. I think the rub for me is that, yes, the government could say, scan Casey's photos for such and such imagery. And presumably right now, because you two jerks made me join iCloud Photo Library, <laughs> then it is hypothetically possible, sure. Your photos were all over Google before. They're scanning everything. Well, that's even worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, your that, already photos have already been completely scanned by Google. So, oh, yeah. I, oh, absolutely. Well, hopefully not anymore. Well, I guess it never really dies. Does it? We were getting sidetracked. Did you have to your trash yet? <laughs> uh, yes, I did. Oh, all right. So, um, so the, the thing is, is that there was... You could argue, and and nobody really knows, but you could argue that while it is easy for the government to say, scan all of Casey Liss's photos and look for such and such, I would assume, maybe ignorantly, maybe naively, that it is less easy, or it was until iOS 15, less easy for the government to say, hey, I would like to know across all Apple users in the United States, who has a picture of Trump or whatever? And now there is clearly a mechanism that Apple claims would never be used for this, that, you know, uh, the NICMA or whoever they are would never, would never give us an image like that. But the, the technical solution to show me all of the iPhones with a picture of, of Trump on it 
they could hypothetically do that now in a far easier way than they ever could before. And what you'd said earlier. Do, do, do you not remember when the U.S. government was listening on every single phone call in the entire United States? <laughs> well, does that not ring a bell? Like, it does. Like, it does. It, it, do not underestimate the government's ability to do like, you know, well, they could target, my, they could tap my phone, but they're not going to listen to all the phone calls in the United That would be crazy. No, they will. Like after the government can absolutely look at every photo and every iCloud backup if they wanted to, they can look at every photo going across the entire internet. Like that's the power of our, that's our tax dollars at work. Are we making our own little oppressive regime under the guise of fear mongering for terrorism? Uh, that's those are all terrible things that have that have happened in our country and and are probably still happening. Exactly right, and it's you know that's again the difference between surveillance for like technology enables surveillance. Like there's plenty of sci-fi on this, right? That without <laughs> technology, you have to look at just the one person. But technology is like you know what? We can just look at everything all the time. Why don't we try that? Like that's why so many sci-fi stories have to do with a techno dystopia where, you know, the panopticon where you're being watched all the time. That's not possible with humans. It's very possible with computers. And so, you know, again, with the discomfort, Apple's solution is essentially surveillance, private surveillance by a private company of private people stuff, right? Uh, but government also does surveillance and thanks to technology, they can also do it on a mass level, right? And, you know, so if... If the government, for all we know, the government is already doing this without Apple's knowledge, that's another thing that our wonderful government does sometimes, see the phone tapping or whatever. Um, but, you know, and it's not, again, it's not a human listening, it's machines processing. That's always the way it is, the magic of computers. But, like, that's why I think you have to look at these in terms of capabilities. If you are tasked with searching all uh, photos for every U.S. citizen, your go-to is not let's get something into the NCMEC database, right? Your go-to is not, aha, finally Apple invented this feature. We'll finally have our opening. No, you've long since implemented your own solution to this that is not Apple-specific, that is not Google-specific, that is not Microsoft-specific, that spans the entire internet and has nothing to do with any specific feature a tech company had to build for you, right? And, and, you know, like, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories you can think about how that might be done, but, like, that's what I get to where you really need to look at the specific feature and it says, does this specific feature make it more likely that this bad thing is going to happen? And this specific feature in this specific case, I think doesn't because it doesn't provide any new capabilities and it doesn't even make it any easier. In fact, it's harder because of the limitations of this database and exact matches and so on and so forth. It's easier to just scan everything for, you know, anything you want to in your own scanning technique of not being as strict of saying it has to be in this fixed database or whatever and doing it client side scan them all server side using whatever logic you want right look for whatever you want you're not limited by this feature this feature is too limiting to be useful as a government tool government has much better tools already at their disposal that i feel like they would prefer which is why this specific feature doesn't bother me the broader question of like why is apple implementing implementing essentially surveillance features is slightly bothersome but i think that is mostly explained by the fact that they're doing this for essentially trying to be narrowly targeted, as Marco was saying before, narrowly targeted to their own apps in the worst case scenario or thing everyone agrees is awful that has special laws already written for it. And so if you're going to be comforted by any of the narrowness, this has all the narrowness you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And and to be clear, and Casey, I agree with your concerns for the most part. Um, I, you know, I think we all saw how big the mountain of asterisks on our government was uh, over the last 
and, and not even just from 2016 to 2020, but I would even say a lot of that happened from 2000 to 2016 as well. Uh, yeah. It happened much longer than that, but it started affecting white started affecting white men recently. So we all know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the, that's the truth of like if you if you if you think you have distrust of government or distrust the government's going to do things that are in your best interest, you're very lucky if you just had that realization in the last decade or so. Most most Americans have had that realization for way longer. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I. I have a slightly more, I guess, defeatist view on this, but you know, I think that it enables a more um, clever solution, which is, you know, I, I think people keep saying like, "Well, this is okay in the U.S., but what happens if China gets a hold of this?" Like, no, it's not okay in the U.S. either. Like, it's it's not okay for the government to have, you know, widespread surveillance powers in the U.S. either. And we we have seen over and over again how the freedoms that we claim to have, the justice system that we claim works and is reasonably impartial uh the oversight the government agencies are supposed to have over each other the checks and balances we've seen how all of that can just be forgotten and made exceptions for at the drop of a hat you know and it's not it isn't even just like one or two bad presidents that that get us there it like we (laughs) we have so many exceptions on all those freedoms and and protections that we think we allegedly have uh and the reality is we have a government that largely does whatever it wants uh, and that when bad actors come in, they are able to get a lot of bad stuff through our system. Uh, I mean, geez, it's, I'm always reminded of like how – imagine how dark things would have gotten in the last four years if they were actually competent. Yep. Uh, you know, they were they were like incredibly – you know, cruel and, and mean spirited, but they weren't very competent. Imagine if they were also competent, like how much damage could have been done. It'd be like the Reagan years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my point is, you know, if you are, if you desire or if, if you need for whatever you are trying to do, if you need super privacy, if you want to have private conversations, say about the government, you are not doing yourself any favors by having those conversations on public cloud services that are not end-to-end encrypted. There's lots of arguments whether iCloud should have end-to-end encryption for everything. Uh, iMessage is, by default. You know, Obviously, there's the issue of like what happens when it backs up itself to iCloud, which is, I forget if that's the default now, but you, that can be turned off, uh, and it was off for a long time before it existed. Anyway, the point is, if you want governments that are, that are ill-intentioned, which... You know, over over the over an infinite time scale, that's going to be every government. You know, at some point, if you if you want your data to be above government surveillance, you have to take a purely technical approach to that and and use things like strong encryption, and even then, hope that you know the NSA hasn't broken that encryption very easily in ways that you don't know about yet, or, or intentionally weakened it. You didn't even know, but they weakened it from the beginning. There's lots of I love the I love those conspiracy theories, and some of those you look at and you're like, eh, it doesn't make me feel good. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so the point is like if if you want to get out of, you know, the 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 potential for governments to to abuse their power and 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 for Apple to abuse its power and to work together to try to get you like the way you do that is using technological measures, like using encryption and stuff that are that is beyond like, you know, where where you are protected, again, assuming that it's good encryption and that hasn't been cracked or broken or sabotaged, you are protected by math and logic and provable things not just policies 
Uh, but the law, the law outweighs math, though. Remember when there was like a d- encryption? <laughs> uh, there was e- there was export uh, like restrictions on heavy encryption, and like the PlayStation Two ha- couldn't be exported or what do you like? Yeah, like, yeah. You can. That's that's what we're that's what we keep getting out of like if you let the government if you don't do anything, the government will make some terrible law like outlawing end-to-end encryption. So yeah, math is the protection against. That's why Apple can refuse the FBI's thing. Is like we literally can't do that. It's like it's physically impossible because of math, right? But the government can always come back and say, oh, yeah, guess what? End-to-end encryption is legal now. And that's super bad. So in the end, the solution to all this all has to be a government-powered solution. In the interim, when we, have, when we are protected by whatever, whatever crumbling foundation remains of our Constitution that protects the, our supposedly inalienable rights, as upheld by it, uh, a, a bunch of lifetime-appointed judges uh, who got there by an incredibly corrupt, terrible process, uh, and, and many of them are themselves terrible people— Hopefully, we protect enough of our foundational rights so that, uh, let's say, if the government makes a terrible law that makes it uh, impossible to provide any kind of secure communication, that that would be shown to be unconstitutional by someone who isn't an originalist. The founders <laughs> never knew about encryption. This must be legal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what Marco's point, though, is about the, uh, about the you know, talking about it on public clouds or whatever, gets to this really good... Uh, aspect of this whole discussion that brought up by the person who runs the pinboard service and Twitter account. I forget this person's name. Maciej Soglowski. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'm just going to read these three tweets because it basically summarizes it better than I could. This is directly from the pinboard tweets. Uh, The governance problem here is that we have six or seven giant companies that can make unilateral decisions with enormous social impact and no way of influencing those decisions beyond asking nicely for them to come talk to the affected parties before they act. So this is like, this is the problem of like, oh, well, so if you don't trust Apple, maybe you should try Google. Oh, if you don't trust Google, maybe you should try Microsoft. Oh, if you don't trust Microsoft, uh, I'm running out of places to get my <laughs> phone real quick. Um, Didn't Stallman try to make a phone or something? Whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Large tech companies at this point can do things with their policy. Like let's say, let's say Apple implemented a bunch of these policies for child safety and they were much worse. They were like super harmful and... Like they they did a much worse job of trying to balance the concerns of like they really, you know, the the chance of false positives are really high and it was just going to look like it was going to be a disaster. You don't have a lot of recourse as a consumer because these companies get so big and so powerful and they all tend to do similar things. See all the other companies that are doing the server side scanning that if you really don't like what they're doing because they're not government entities, you can't vote them out and you, quote unquote, voting with your wallet has a limited effect on them unless you can get millions and millions and millions and millions of other people to do the same thing. And in the end, people tend to need, in in the modern era, cell phones to just live their life. And if there are only a few sources of those cell phones and all those sources agree that they're all going to do a thing and you don't like it, the idea of, well, I just won't have a cell phone is very difficult to convince millions and millions of other people to also do to the degree that it affects them. So the general, we've talked about this before, of like, why is it bad to have a, a small number of giant companies that control important aspects of our life? In general, it's bad. So continuing the pinboard tweets, the way we find out about these technology impacts is by rolling them out worldwide and then seeing what social and political changes result. See also social networking, Facebook, so on and so forth. Um, sorry, I'm adding some commentary. I hope you can see which parts are mine. <laughs> it's certainly a bracing way to run experiments with no institutional review board to bog everything down uh, with pessimism and bureaucracy. So it's important to, to note, like, yeah, private companies can do things more efficiently uh, in these regards. And sometimes it is better to not 
like this shouldn't be done through one governmental agency. Innovation is the reason we have all these great things from Apple and Microsoft and Google and all that good stuff, right? Um, so I'm continuing from Pinboard. But the problem is there's no way to close the loop right now. To make it so that Apple or Facebook or Google inflicts huge social harm, their bottom line suffers or their execs go to jail or they lose all their customers. Profits accrue while social impacts are externalized. So say you start a social network, uh, it, you know, originally to try to rate which girls in your school are hot or not, and eventually <laughs> you end up fomenting genocide halfway across the earth. Does that affect... Does that affect your bottom line? Are you harmed by that? I guess it's a press relations issue. We can probably smooth that over. But when you get to the size of Facebook, if you accidentally foment genocide, there, like the loop is not closed. Th those are the external, <laughs> those are the externalized harms. But your stock doesn't suddenly drop in half. You don't get fired. Nobody goes to jail. Uh, maybe you get brought in front of Congress and they yell at you a little bit while you say that you can't remember or are just trying to do the right thing. But this is yet, an, like, I, you know, I know we just got done talking about how Apple, we think, is mostly trying to do the right thing here. It's important for technology companies to do something. But let's not lose sight of the fact that having gigantic, incredibly powerful, a small number of gigantic, incredibly powerful tech companies is itself its own problem, independent of the problem of trying to have a government. Because as bad as the government system is, we have even less control collectively over what these companies do. In some ways, you may think we have more because like, oh, we get the, the, the citizens are, are make or break these companies. But practically speaking, especially in areas that have technical nuance, it has proven very difficult for consumer sentiment to, to close the loop, to say, hey, company, if you do a bad thing, you will be punished in a way that makes you motivated to not do bad things in the future that loop tends to only work in terms of like products that explode in your hands or like <laughs> you know supporting the worst of the worst possible politicians with your donations but in general if you do something and there's like a third order effect again if you make facebook and it accidentally foments genocide um most people are like yeah but that wasn't really facebook's fault and the genocide people were going to do a genocide anyway and facebook's trying <laughs> to stop it and like like the loop is not closed there right and so if there's something that all these big phone companies are doing with their phones that you don't like, it's not actually that easy to change that, especially if you don't like it, but no one else cares. Like that, the people like you may be listening to this and saying, I'm never going to buy an Apple phone. They're spying on me. And so is Google and so is Facebook or whatever. But just try getting one of your friends who's not into the tech world to listen this far into this podcast. In general, <laughs> what, we've, what we've seen from technology stuff like this is that People just don't care. Like, they just want their phone to work. They just want it to do their things as long as it doesn't bother them, as long as they're not falsely flagged for child sexual abuse material. They mostly don't care. So trying to affect the uh, the, the policies of these companies by rallying the people to refuse to buy Apple phones or Google phones or Microsoft phones or Android phones of any maker is really, really difficult because, uh, to paraphrase singles, people love their phones. We are sponsored this week by Burrow, the company setting a new standard in furniture. Burrow has timeless American mid-century and contemporary Scandinavian styles for their furniture. It's easy to move and comes in modular designs. So you can get it upstairs. You can mix and match different pieces and stuff. And it's all made from premium, durable materials, including responsibly forested hardwood, top-grain Italian leather, reinforced metal hardware, and everything you might expect out of high-quality furniture. 
Their in-house design takes a research-driven approach to make sure their furniture fits your lifestyle. This translates to things like a simple mounting guide uh, for the index wall shelves they sell, a tool-free assembly process, and of course, a modern, convenient shopping experience. They got rid of the faraway warehouse stores, the high-pressure showrooms, and they replaced them with modern, easy-to-use online shopping. Of course, that's what you want these days. You get to create and customize your own furniture without leaving your house. And there's free shipping for all. Every order, no matter how big or how small, is delivered directly to your door for free. This can save easily up to $100 or more when it comes to big stuff like couches. And all this is backed with Burrow's world-class service. You know, everyone needs a little help sometimes. The Burrow team is always available to lend a hand, from custom orders to delivery scheduling, whatever you might need. So listeners can get $75 off your first order at burrow.com slash ATP. That's B-U-R-R-O-W, burrow.com slash ATP for $75 off your first order. Burrow.com slash ATP. Thank you so much to Burrow for sponsoring our show. Lalo Vargas writes, hello, friends. What's your current thinking on Bitcoin and crypto in general? I think I never heard you talking about uh, nerd money. Do you hold any, <laughs> without disclosing any amounts, nerd money. any project in particular that you like? Thanks, friends. Uh, so a couple things. First of all, let me try to be brief, uh, which we never succeed, successfully do on this show. Uh, my thoughts on crypto are, you know, I think the heat death of the universe is coming fast enough without crypto. Let's not accelerate it. Uh, but with that said, one of you, probably John, added two <laughs> delightful links to the show notes, which is en.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash Ponzi scheme and slash pyramid scheme, which made me laugh more than I am comfortable admitting when I saw those in the show notes a day or two back. So, John, would you like to explain the relevance here? Yeah, John, do you hold any Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. So, uh we did actually talk about this on a past yeah, we show. Did. Not um, that long ago, too. I put these links in there just because it's fun to, like, if you read the little summary on Pyramid Scheme, you would read it and say, okay, technically Bitcoin isn't a pyramid scheme because Pyramid Scheme is a business model that recruits members via promise of payments or services for enrolling other members into the scheme. It's like, that's not how Bitcoin works. You don't get Bitcoins for recruiting other people into Bitcoin. So that's, it's not really a pyramid scheme. So let's look at Ponzi scheme. Is that what it is? Ponzi scheme is a form of fraud that lures investors and pays profits to earlier investors with funds to more recent investors. It's like, well, that's not how Bitcoin works. When new people invest in Bitcoin, their money doesn't go to the early investors like, like directly like it does in a Ponzi scheme. The reason I put these links in here, though, is that although Bitcoin technically isn't exactly like the technical definition of a pyramid scheme, it technically isn't exactly like the definition of a Ponzi scheme, it operates very much like them in that thus far, <laughs> the only value inherent in Bitcoin is based on the speculation that the price of everyone's Bitcoin will go up. And so... Getting more people to invest in Bitcoin and therefore making Bitcoin look more desirable does, in fact, benefit the early investors. And, quote unquote, recruiting people into getting Bitcoin, just like in a pyramid scheme, does, in fact, raise the value of the people who already have Bitcoin and were in earlier. Right. Setting that aside, we've talked about in the past the, the mathematical foundations of like, oh, isn't it cool that you can have two people who don't trust each other have an exchange of money without a central party mediating it? Right. 
that that technology is interesting. Unfortunately, it uses a lot of energy and is really slow and doesn't have good concurrency and has all sorts of other problems that have to do with it, which makes it not that interesting for many problems, except for buying heroin. It's a great way for criminals <laughs> that don't trust each other to exchange money in a way that's not observable by governments. So there is a use case for Bitcoin. It just happens to be a terrible Bitcoin. So if you are a criminal and don't want to use the banking system because you're doing something criminal, Bitcoin is a great way to do that. So what Bitcoin has enabled is a huge explosion in ransomware because guess what you can get paid for ransomware anonymously through bitcoin it's way easier than trying to get money into because think of what you have to do with ransomware without bitcoin you have to get someone to transfer money into like a a numbered account in like switzerland or something it's like way more complicated bitcoin is so much easier so that's why there is a huge explosion in ransomware so what do i think about cryptocurrency that uses proof of work or even the ones that don't like yeah proof of stake is the new one yeah, proof of stake is slightly better for the environment. But the bottom line is, like, lots of bad uses are enabled. Most of the people who are into it, and the reason you see so much evangelism is because the more people they can get to get into Bitcoin, the higher the value of Bitcoin goes up, and that helps them with their investment. And those are all the earmarks of a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme, even if it's not technically exactly the same thing. So are people getting rich off of Bitcoin? Yeah, people get rich off of pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes all the time. That's why they exist, because they make people rich. <laughs> But they're not a great thing to get into. And the whole thing about Bitcoin is like, well, if you had said, you know, people thought that it was about reaching the tipping point five years ago. But if you had heeded that advice and not invested, you wouldn't be rich like I am now. That's true. That's true of Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes, too. <laughs> but it like it doesn't make me excited to get into them because I am not planning on ransomwareing anything. I'm not trying to buy heroin. Uh, and I do not have confidence that were I to put my life savings into some kind of cryptocurrency, that I would be uh, that I would not be the last person held, left holding the bag. But I instead would be one of those early investors who gets rich off of it. So, um, if you have gotten rich off it, congratulations, good job. Um, uh, but if you have not invested in Bitcoin, I would suggest that it is not a particularly safe place to put your life savings, given that no one really knows how and when this story will end. But most people are pretty confident that it will end in some way. And when it does end, uh, you don't want to be the one, you know, left holding the bag. You don't want to be the one playing musical chairs who has no place to sit down. When all the other people cash out, the early people, if they haven't already, and you're left with a bunch of Bitcoin that becomes not worth quite that much. And if you were wondering if Bitcoin really has great utility and worth in the world, look at what people do with it, which is they like to exchange it for what I would call real nerd money, which is actual money that you can use to buy things. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, a couple of a couple of quick thoughts here. Uh, first of all, I think it was ATP 424 from April where we discussed this. Um, I put a link to that in the show notes. And additionally, I, I do think as much as I snark on Bitcoin and crypto, I do think, and John, you alluded to this earlier, the mathematics behind it or, or the, the principle of the mathematics behind it, I think are fascinating and very clever and very cool. And I've talked about this uh, a couple of times, but there's a really good video by Blue31Brown or something like that. I forget the name of this person. 3Blue1Brown, uh, I was close. Um, it's like a 25-minute video or something like that. But it is extremely well done and builds up from like, hey, how do you and a couple of roommates figure out how to settle up bills if you don't trust each other. And, and it basically ends up with Bitcoin. So as a solution to a problem, I think it's very clever and very interesting. As something that is using incredible amounts of power and is extraordinarily inefficient, by and large, and is surely going to create a lot of email for us that we don't want, uh, not a fan. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, exam- <laughs> yeah. this is an example of externalities, right? So the technology is there, and it's like, oh, and the externality that we we just essentially made it profitable to burn energy, right? Because as long as you you make more in Bitcoin than you spend in electricity, it is a profitable endeavor. So the unintended externality of these cool systems for having sort of zero trust, uh, you know, no uh, middle party relationship to be able to exchange uh, things, the externality is wait a second, I think you just made it profitable to burn electricity. And they did, and people do. And it makes sense from a financial perspective, but from a, like, from a Earth perspective of like, so what value are you creating? Well, it's kind of like a pyramid scheme and some people get rich. Okay, and then the cost is, what? How much CO2 emissions? Oh, we only use solar power, spare energy. Eh, not quite sure about that. Like, the, the real question for all that is like, okay, look, if Bitcoin didn't exist, would that coal have been burnt? <laughs> like, where would that energy go? Like, you know, the, the, obviously the, the silly ones are like, there was a shutdown power plant and Bitcoin miners bought the power plant and turned it on and all it does is run Bitcoin stuff all day. And by the way, it's making everyone's gaming cards more expensive. Can we at least gather, you know, be, agree on that? Well, even nerds should be able to say, it's not good that we can't get GPUs to play games. Games produce value in the form of happiness in the world, right? Actual, and people get paid to make games. Like, it's an actual economy. Bitcoin, for the most part, does not produce any value except for speculative investors making money at the expense of later investors uh, and maybe some cool technical papers that help someone get their PhD. Well, that sounds like a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, and I think like to me, like I, I, multiple parts of this are offensive to me. Like, first of all, put. I I am I am in agreement with Casey and and I think John that you know the 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 technological concepts of shared work like this the uh, the idea of of blockchain verification of transactions that's a really cool set of of technologies and and approaches and it's very clever and it's fascinating um but i think what that has enabled if you look at the the total like the net good and bad that have been enabled by cryptocurrency i think the bad dramatically outweighs the good it's not it's not even close the killer app of bitcoin is literally ransomware Right, right. Like, exactly. And, and possibly also drugs, but I mostly just hear about the ransomware and the circles that I travel. Like the net net is not good for the world. For individuals, it might be great. Some people who got rich, it's great for them. But for the world, it's super negative at this point. It's not even close. Yeah. And then my, my second major problem with Bitcoin is the people. Now, <laughs> I know we're going to hear from a few of them. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't like you. <laughs> because <laughs> here's... <laughs> And and if you write to me and say bad stuff, I won't care. I don't like you because what you most likely are if you're into Bitcoin. So A, you are very likely to be a person who is willing to make the world a slightly worse place, whether it's through carbon emissions or through you know participating in a system that enables a lot of illegal and damaging activity, whatever it is, like you're willing to make the world a little bit worse place to make a buck. And that tends to attract not the best people to that area now when you combine that factor with okay i know i am a privileged white man in tech but can i use the word tech bros i, I think i hope so i think so you're old enough now that i think you're a lot you're now you're an old white man in tech so you can say tech bros and i don't think i ever was a tech bro necessarily i, I was near you're totally you totally you 100 percent were no, I no, I was I was near that area, but I don't think I would. I was never. I wasn't like you know one of those people who would like 
go on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt and pitch my startup that's going to change the world. That was never me. You, yeah, but you were in a startup that changed the world, so... Not, no, I, I was in a startup. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if it changed the world. Anyway, I, I wouldn't say... I would never... Change the world of porn, okay? I would never claim that. And that actually mostly <laughs> happened after crap, I was gone, for guys. the record. Anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> I The world of tech bros is a world that I don't usually get along with very well. It's all those people who the Silicon Valley TV show makes fun of and they don't think it's funny. <laughs> like it's like it's that crowd, right? So, what Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general? The kind of people that it attracts. It's the combination of tech bros, which are largely a pretty terrible group of people in, you know, some relatively minor ways, but mostly it's still terrible people. The intersection of tech bros with a far worse group of people, finance bros. <laughs> oh, and, and living in the New York metro area, I see a lot of these people. Oh my God, they're the worst. So when you combine tech bros with finance bros. And libertarians. Yeah, and libertarians. That's, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. When you combine these groups of people, and especially the prospect of making money pulls in the finance bros and converts some of the finance bros into wannabe tech bros. And so the intersection of this produces just the worst group of people ever. Like you, you do not. And oh, and of course, all the you know profiteering people who will burn carbon to make a little bit of money. So like it, this is the collection of these people is just the worst people. And so cryptocurrency as a thing, while I think it's an interesting concept, the realities of the kinds of people who are mostly into it and the kinds of people it attracts and the kind of usage it attracts are so terrible. <laughs> And both from like an annoying point of view and from, you know, from a world damage point of view. So it's just it's a terrible thing that it has actually produced. And it's these are all the worst people that have invaded our industry and taken over all the GPUs and everything. It's like they're making the tech industry worse. And and they're they're like, you know, they're a burden on us. They're a burden on the world. Like, I just I, I don't see any benefit to it. So to answer the question. I don't hold any cryptocurrency, <laughs> and I'm I'm not a big fan. I, I'm not as harsh as Marco in that, like when, like I think I talked about this before when we first talked about Bitcoin. Like when a new technology comes out, it's natural for nerds to be curious in it. So if you like got a bunch of Bitcoin, especially if you, because you thought it was a cool technical thing or whatever, and play with it, and, and hey, especially if you made a bunch of money off of it because you mined Bitcoin back when it was easy and they became worth a lot of money, great, more power to you. Like especially in the beginning, it wasn't clear how this was going to turn out. It's like any new technology. And as tech enthusiasts, we're interested in new technologies, right? I mean, when Bitcoin first came out, I downloaded the software and tried like mining for it. I never actually got any Bitcoin, so I don't have any. I have never owned any. But it's a technical curiosity. And so if you became rich off Bitcoin, I say more power to you. You found a way, hopefully you use that money for something good. You, you know, use it to have a happy life and to support your community and your family, like, kudos right but what margo is talking about is like at this point at this today 2021 correct the the footprint of cryptocurrency and understanding what it is what it's good for what it's not good for and how what you have to do to make money off of it is much more clear now than it was and so i would say if you have bitcoin i'd be looking for to make it the most advantageous exit as possible and i what i wouldn't say like i would say that if you're super enthusiastic about the sort of utopian possibilities of cryptocurrency 
try to come up with one that's better than the ones we have now, which to the credit of a lot of people involved in this, they do. That's why proof of stake exists instead of uh, proof of work, right? People are trying to improve it, but Bitcoin gets all the press because it's like the, the one that sort of broke through is the most popular. Uh, it has a lot of mystique around it. And when a lot of people say cryptocurrency, what they really mean is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has a lot of bad externalities and I would not suggest anyone get into it. Uh, and if, people, if you got rich off it, great. But at this point, it's not great. If you're trying to improve it or do something better, that's good. But at this point, like, at this point, like these, you know, I'm going to make a cryptocurrency and I'm going to convince a celebrity to endorse it because they don't understand the tech, but I'll just tell them that it'll make the money. And it actually will because the celebrity will give it uh, publicity. And then the early people who have most of the coins will make money. And like, it's just another way to scam people out of money, to scam investors out of money. It's tales all this time. This is not like what you see happening with Bitcoin always happens with financial instruments. Like look at the various financial crashes caused by those tech bros that Marco doesn't like, right? It's just that now there's a different angle on it. And that is just generally distasteful and bad. I will say, though, I do have some cryptocurrency. Some In the early days of crypto, some cryptocurrency company was giving out free cryptocurrency for signing up to their website. And I did that. And I got free cryptocurrency, which I still have. Uh, and it just sits there as a number. And it's not a very big number. Uh, but I'd never do anything with it or look at it because it's not worth enough money for me to cash out, right? Um, uh, and if it is someday worth enough money to cash out, I'll cash out and be like one of those people who says, oh, great, you got rich off cryptocurrency, but it's probably never going to be worth any money. So I just ignore it. Uh, but I do have some of it. I did actually have to like declare it on my taxes as an asset or whatever, because it's above like whatever the $200 limit or something like we had to have our accountant go through all this or whatever. So it's an official thing that I own and I look at it and if it ever becomes worth millions of dollars, you can bet your butt I'm going to cash out of it and take that millions of dollars. But I got it for free, and it's not a thing that I use in an, as an investment instrument. I do not use it to, to do any transactions. I don't do anything having anything to do with crypto. Richie Haronian writes, I know the clever trick to limit iCloud photo library disk usage by creating a separate APFS volume or disk image. Recently, I noticed that Messages was using almost 100 gigs on my 256 gig SSD. That is Ooh. not desirable. I did a bit of research, but couldn't find a similar trick to limit Messages disk usage. I think it's a little more complicated since message attachments are somewhere under the library folder. Any insight here? I don't have any insight, although I thought the Messages like the actual text of messages was in like a series of SQLite databases, if I remember right. And I think that Richie is right that the attachments are stored somewhere semi-predictable, but no, I have no useful insight here. You could probably find the the folder that they are being stored in deep within library, whatever. You could probably use a symlink trick to symlink that into a disk image that is limited or, 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 you know, an APFS volume, whatever, however you want to do it. Um, so that, that's the first thing I would try, but also I would also ask, um, maybe does Richie not use iCloud, uh, for message attachments because, uh, message attachments can be very big. It is in some ways a photo library. Um, and actually I don't think we even heard whether those are being scanned for the CSAM. Um, but, oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can, um, which is, I'm kind of surprised we didn't hear that actually. Cause anyway, um, but if you store your messages attachments in iCloud, I bet it offloads them pretty soon when you're low on space, and so it probably doesn't keep that big of a cache. Because I know, like when I, because I use iCloud uh, for iMessage attachments, and as I scroll up through messages, it has to like page them in, loading them off the network after a while because it's not keeping all those attachments locally. Whereas before iCloud Photo Library, I remember that would always like a that was always a big um, chunk of my iPhone storage space. Like you'd see messages and it would be like, you know, five gigs, 10 gigs, whatever on your phone, because it was all those attachments like historically over time. So I would suggest if Richie does not use 
iCloud photo storage or iCloud storage um, to store message attachments, I would suggest trying that or considering that if this is going to be a big problem, uh, like if you can't just get rid of these attachments because they actually are like the only copies of them. Um, but uh, if if you if this is just you know some disk quota not being enforced well and they are being paged off as they get older, I would attempt some kind of symlink trick into a disk image. I think it's pretty brave to try the symlink trick. I generally don't want to mess with, especially now with like the containerization and the various container folders, don't want to mess with the internal structures of these iCloud powered apps just because, uh, you know, it's not as straightforward as it used to be. The library folder used to be much be much more tractable, but now with the advent of the container system and with iCloud stuff, it's a little bit sketchier. Um, the problem with messages is the problem with a lot of Apple apps in that it's quote unquote supposed to manage your disk space in an intelligent manner by purging things that are safely ensconced in the server, which to Marco's point means that you basically should enable the iCloud uh, messages sync thing, which means the government will be able to look at all your messages in your iCloud backups too, which is nice. Um, but yeah, that's the consequences of that. And the Apple's solution to this in recent years has been one iCloud messages thing, which helps solve this problem if it operates correctly. If it doesn't, there's nothing you can really do except cross your fingers and hope that the crap gets purged. But two, they added with some surprising amount of fanfare a couple of years ago, the ability to tell messages to trim off attachments older than some date, right? Because this was a big problem on a lot of people's phones. They were filling their phones with message attachments. Eventually you just fill it, right? So your choices are either get that stuff into the cloud so you can purge it from your phone and not lose it or delete it from your phone. And Apple did both. They came up with, uh, you know, messages in the cloud feature. That's the cloud version. And they also came up with features in the messages app that will let you delete that crap. Um, they they recently, they're doing that in, in reminders now too. It used to be the reminders would just pile up forever, which reminders are obviously tiny. They're not like photos, but eventually after, you know, 10, 15 years of the iPhone, people have a lot of reminders too. So the features to delete them will clean it up. Uh, ironically, the thing that deletes your data, like, oh, delete all attachments older than a year, that will probably actually clear, clean your space up as soon as you activate it. Whereas the iMessage in the cloud thing, you activate it and then you just, you just wait, I guess, and hope <laughs> that something eventually purges crap from your phone. But yeah, the solutions are not great. But those, I think those are the, the, the solutions for you. And finally, Andrew Nelson writes, what camera or lens should I rent for a Disney World trip? I want good at low light, great and fast autofocus, some water resistance in case of an unexpected rain, better sharpness and bokeh than the iPhone 11 Pro, easy to use, and a good battery. Uh, Andrew does not care about long zoom, raw, or touching up pictures. Uh, I will answer this because I can be very quick. What you want is your iPhone 11 Pro, because <laughs> having just gone to Disney World a couple of years ago, we went in late 2019, um, I did bring my big camera, and on a couple of occasions, it was very useful. But by and large, and maybe it's just because my big camera, which is an Olympus OMD EM10 Mark III, I think I have that right. Um, maybe it's just my particular big camera, and that's the crux of the issue, so maybe I'm being unfair. But in, in my opinion, the iPhone, particularly with HDR, which you know, I'm, I'm waiting for John to jump in and tell me that his, his big camera does all these things, but the HDR on the iPhone is really impressive, particularly for outdoor shots where you're trying to get a decent sky that's not blown out smithereens as well as your subject matter. Plus the low light on my iPhone is actually quite a bit better than the, it is on my Olympus here, especially is where John is going to say, oh, so not so fast. Uh, but for, in so many ways, it was just a pain in the butt to carry anything bigger than an iPhone onto ride or anywhere else. So even though I did have my big camera with me pretty much always, 
I should have actually done and, and, and looked and seen how many pictures I took with each, but my gut tells me 80% of the pictures I took on the most recent Disney World trip I had were with my iPhone. And it, in fact, it was either 10 or 11, whatever was current at the time, um, in late 2019. Uh, and, and almost probably 20% at most were taken with the big camera. And I think even that is optimistic. I think it was probably like 90, 10. Uh, I'll come back to John since you have more uh, Disney experience than Marco. Marco, do you have any thoughts on this real quick? Yeah, it was funny. So so because Andrew wanted, you know, if you, you look at the list of wants, it's it's everything iPhones are great at. You know, low light, exactly, exactly. fast, good autofocus, water resistance, <laughs> uh, ease of use, battery, and then, and then Andrew says, don't care, long zoom, raw, and touching up pics. So in, initially, I'm like, well, okay, just iPhone, really. Um, but... Unfortunately, in the middle of the want list, Andrew says, better sharpness and bokeh than iPhone 11 Pro. Okay, so first, I mean, the, the smart-ass answer is go get rent, rent or buy an iPhone 12 Pro Max, <laughs> 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 which is honestly probably the best answer if you actually just don't want to use your iPhone. Um, so I have, I have a couple of alternatives here. Uh, so if Andrew insists, you know, because, see, the, not caring about long zoom and raw that to me really says like, all right, you, you want pictures that are just great right out of the camera without a lot of effort, you want an iPhone. But if you actually want a significantly more resolution and better like actual optical background blur than, you know, better than what an iPhone can do with its weird simulated background thing that blurs your ears off, here are some good options. So from cheapest to most expensive. And also Andrew says rent, which is good. So from cheapest to most expensive, the cheapest option is still just use your iPhone, but get a nice lens that you can clip onto it. A decent telephoto lens that gives you like a, a you know, two to four X kind of zoom range. I don't, I don't, I don't really know what's out there in this area, but that will give you better background blur because that's the, the principle of how those optics work. You get really good background blur if you use a very like, you know, the longest telephoto lens you can get and you get as close to the subject as possible, <laughs> then you will get really good background blur. Uh, and there's other factors, of course, but that's that's what's going to be relevant here. And that's, you know, those lenses are like, you know, 30 to $50 for the various clip-on things. Um, I, I know that the Moment case and lens uh, assembly together is a little more expensive, but tends to be pretty good quality. I even have, I, like, I, I we have, um, Tiff wanted a macro lens to photograph our butterfly caterpillars that, that we are raising here. Um don't, don't, don't worry about it. And, <laughs> and I, and you know, we tried different options and I just, I went on Amazon and just found one that was well reviewed and it was like 30 bucks and it's a, it's, it's like a, a clip on thing. So you just clip it onto the phone, you align it on top of the main camera of the cluster and it just works. And that was great. And it, it was inexpensive. So 30 bucks, you get something like that, but get like a telephoto lens and that, that'll give you what you want. Otherwise use your iPhone. Now, the next most expensive option is to actually, you know, do what Andrew asked for and actually rent a camera or lens. I would say because Zoom is not one of Andrew's priorities, I would say get a fixed lens compact camera. And again, rentals are, are make this easier. Now, the water resistance uh, thing makes some of this a little trickier. So I will say rent a camera that is not water resistant hope it doesn't rain and get the insurance plan because the you know any kind of like you know lens rentals is is where i've rented from before um they 
and pretty much anywhere else you can rent a camera will have some kind of you know somewhat pricey insurance plan you could add on that will cover all risk. So you can drop it in the ocean and you won't be responsible for all of it or some of it or whatever. So I would say rent whatever you want and get the insurance and then water resistance is kind of checked off the list. Okay, so as for what you want, what I would suggest having never used either of these cameras is at the low end, the Fuji X100F because it's a fixed lens camera. Fuji, I found, is very, very good at getting really good pictures right out of the camera with no post-processing whatsoever. They have really good JPEG rendering, usually, uh, really good color rendering. It's just, it's very, very good for low-effort, good shots. Uh, and I, while I've never owned this particular camera, Fuji cameras tend to have very good reviews for things like basic usability, ergonomics, stuff like that. It's also reasonably compact. And, but yet, it, it is going to give you a significantly better uh, optical setup than you can get from an iPhone for things like total resolution and uh, background blur- blurability optically. Uh, and then the high-end option, you know, that's, Lens Rentals has that for about $83 a day or a week. Uh, so the high-end option for about three times that is the Leica Q2. Uh, I have never owned a Leica camera. I have rented Leica cameras before. I have briefly used a Q1. I have not used a Q2, but uh, the Q the Q series of Leica cameras is delightful to use. They're extraordinarily expensive to buy, but if you're going to be renting one for a short trip, it's you know 250 bucks plus whatever they want for the uh, for the insurance. So you're probably looking at you know three three fifty. So again, not cheap, and you're really getting close to you know just the buy an iPhone 12 Pro Max territory. <laughs> but but what you get with the Leica cameras in my in my experience is again really good JPEGs right out of the box with with not a lot of messing around. You do have amazing optics, amazing resolution, you have you know great ability to have good blur even at even with this relatively wide angle lens. Um, and they're just fun to use. They're very fast and responsive. And that's something that's really hard to find in full frame cameras. Um, but, but here it is like the Leica Q2 has that. Um, so anyway, that's my recommendation. But again, I would, I would go with Casey and suggest, uh, just getting like maybe a fun little clip on lens for your iPhone and a battery pack, uh, might be the better approach. For what it's worth, uh, at LensRentals.com, which both Marco and I have used in the past, and although they've never sponsored, I, I definitely recommend them. They're they're excellent. Uh, the LensCap Plus coverage, which is the most expensive, I don't know exactly what it covers. Uh, for the Leica Q2, it's $60, so that brings the rental price from $257 for a week to $317 for a week. Uh, which is not cheap. And like you said, we're talking about at this point, you know, you're, why not just buy yourself a new iPhone? But uh, I, I do understand what you're saying. And I do like the idea of what you're saying there, Marco. But I stand by iPhone's the way to go. John, what do you think? So this list of, uh, of criteria is a little bit odd because it doesn't have any kind of weighting. Um, so both of you said like, oh, the iPhone's good at low light. That's true as long as your subject is not moving. Uh, the way point. the iPhone gets good at low light is by taking 100 pictures and combining them together into one picture. Uh, if you're trying to take a picture of a kid running through some dimly lit ride, you're going to get nothing because the sensor on the iPhone is tiny. It does not gather a lot of light. Computational photography is doing all the heavy lifting on low light. Now, that said, maybe you think your subject won't be moving and all you want to take is pictures of people standing and smiling in front of things. Then the iPhone is good at low light again. Congratulations, right? But good at low light 
Like if that it's listed first, but like if that if that is your number one priority, to actually get a camera that is good at low light, you need a much bigger sensor. And because this list isn't prioritized, it's like okay, but how good at low light? Like, do you need a full frame camera? Do you want medium format? And when I get into stuff like this, there's one thing that wasn't listed, which is like reasonable size is listed nowhere. So like it really opens the door to like, do you want to carry a gigantic 50 pound camera? I don't think you do, but you didn't list it on your wants. So it's hard for me to say what I should recommend because you're kind of saying like, oh, like what this list says to me is I don't actually mind if it's kind of a big camera, like his size and portability and convenience like that wasn't listed, right? The next item, great fast autofocus. This is where I start to get into the cameras I have the most experience with. Sony has one of the best, if not generally agreed upon to be the best, great fast autofocuses in the entire industry across almost their entire camera line. It's really, really good about finding the thing you want to focus on and latching onto it really, really quickly and not letting go. Uh, that's like the major selling point of the software side of the Sony cameras. It's really, really good, right? Uh, lots of Sony cameras are water resistant. Uh, and then so better sharpness and bokeh than uh, iPhone 11 Pro. Yes, iPhone 12 is a snarky answer, but like really it's not that much better. That makes me think you want a real camera because if you want actual optical depth of field, you need actual optics, which means you need an actual camera. And so given that, given that you didn't say like, that, like it's not super important to have the smallest, lightest thing, I'm setting aside the cameras that Marco recommended, which is like the little compact all-in-one non-interchangeable lens cameras because that wasn't listed in the criteria. So why would you pick that camera unless compactness is one of your priorities? Which leads me to considering the Sonys that I have the most experience with. And especially if you're willing to rent, I would say that makes it even easier. Now you say long zoom is not important, but I know from experience of taking pictures at Disney World, long zoom is not important having a prime lens can be limiting because you won't know what focal length to put it. Maybe you want a big picture of like the, the big ride of like, Oh, here's space mountain or the Matterhorn or whatever. And then another situation, maybe you want a picture of just your kid, right? You probably need some kind of zoom range to say, this is a wide shot versus this is a tighter shot, right? So you, it's going to be really difficult to fix, uh, to pick a single focal length. So I, what I'm saying is get an interchangeable lens camera with a pretty big sensor and a decent lens that has a reasonable zoom range, not a long zoom. It's not going to zoom in probably any farther than, you know, an average camera, but you really want that range. Maybe you'll even find yourself in a cramped situation where you want to take a picture of your family and they're all in front of you and you're like a foot away and you want to get the whole family in. Now you need a wider angle, right? So kind of like the range that the iPhone does is a reasonable range, but I think the iPhone is it falls a little bit short about getting a picture of your kid on the Dumbo ride because they might be far away from you, like the little barriers of where you have to get the picture from, right? So you need some kind of zoom range. So my main recommendation, and you know, this is both based on my experience, but it's also based on my, my very limited experience, but it's also based on the reason I bought this camera is if you're going to rent, get the Sony a6600, which like there are better, cheaper options if you're going to buy. But if you're going to rent, it's probably not that much more expensive to rent the 6600 than the 65 or 64 or 61. So get the 6600. It comes with the amazing fast autofocus system. It is weather resistant slash weather. It's water resistant, right? So it actually is kind of weather sealed. And so is the lens I'm going to recommend you get for it and get the Tamron 17 to 70 lens, which has a great zoom range, is an amazing lens and is weather sealed. And it's not that big, but the sensor is way bigger than an iPhone. 
it has way better low light performance than the iPhone with any subject that moves in any way, including your hand shaking, right? Because the sensor is so much bigger. And the step up from that, I would say, is the A7C, which is a full frame sensor, same exact size body, same great autofocus system, same weather resistance, and you can get the same exact camera on 17 to 70. Actually, no, it's not full frame. You can get the full frame equivalent of that lens from a different manufacturer um, and use that on the on the full frame 7C. But the the, the camera that is literally sitting on my desk here right now, the A6600 with the Tamron 17 to 70, will absolutely cover all of your actual photography needs, and it will take way better pictures than any of the cameras recommended so far at a similar price. Thanks to our sponsors this week, ExpressVPN, Memberful, and Burrow. And thanks to our members who support us directly. You can join at atp.fm slash join. Thanks, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter Follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse. It's accidental. T-A-M-R-O-N? Tamron? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. T-A-M-R-O-N. Yeah. I've not heard of that. 1770. All right, I'm trying to get some... Yeah, that's, Sigma and Tamron are like the two big like kind of third-party lens makers for, for most of the SLRs and stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, the 17 to 70 is like... Uh, the, I should have recommended... I mean, I'm still in the show, so it's fine. The Sony <laughs> uh, 16 to 55 is actually a better lens, but it costs twice as much. But if you're again, if you're renting, maybe that doesn't make a difference. So consider that as well. Um, I, I, I mentioned the Tamron just because it has a slightly bigger range and it's cheaper. And if that factors it in in the uh, in at all the rental, then do that. But the Sony sixteen to fifty five is actually slightly better, tiny bit more compact. And if you're renting, it's probably like only five bucks more or something. See, I don't know how you would want to lug around a full frame like Sony interchangeable setup. Well, they didn't. They didn't list compact size. Like they didn't say it has to be small enough to fit in my thing or whatever. And having lugged around a camera of this exact size on a extended Disney vacation, I can say it wasn't that bad. Like, I, like these are compact cameras. They're small. Like the, the A7C is the same size body. They're small for interchangeable lens cameras, but they're not small compared to an iPhone. But I don't think they're that bad to to lug around. Even in the million degree heat, even with like a backpack on everything. I did it. I was fine. I survived. And so if you're not going to list compact size in, then you're going to get recommended larger cameras. It's not like I'm recommending a gigantic, you know, Canon SLR full frame that's like weighs seven times as much, right? Yeah, that's fair. But I don't know. I mean, this is why like I ultimately like I think Casey's experience of just mostly using the iPhone is worth heating. Like it's so like the iPhone is so good as a vacation camera for most people's priorities. Like John, like John, you are I think much more willing to lug around a camera 
than most people are. But but Andrew specifically is trying to say not an iPhone with this criteria. They want better sharpness, better bokeh. Like they want actual optical depth of field. And they know they're not going to get that with an iPhone. So they're sa- And they're talking about renting, right? So they're obviously saying they might as well have just said, don't recommend me an iPhone because they know what the iPhone is. It's known quantity, has its qualities. And even though for most people, it probably does everything you need to do. Andrew is specifically asking, I want better pictures than I would get with an iPhone. You want real optical depth of the field, you get a real camera, that's what you'll get. I totally get you, and and I'm glad both of you made those recommendations, but ultimately I feel like it is worth hearing someone say it might be worth just saving your money and sticking with the thing that's most convenient. Well, what what I said last time is, look, they're going to have their iPhone with them anyway. So if there is a situation in which you don't want to have the big camera or you think the iPhone would take a better picture, just use the iPhone. Like, I didn't not take iPhone pictures on my Disney vacation. Of course I had my iPhone with me. I had both. Right. You're, you're going to have your phone with you anyway. Like, it's not like you're going to say, I got a real camera, so I don't need to bring my phone. Of course, you're going to bring your phone. Everybody brings their phones. It's so the government can surveil you. No, that's not why people <laughs> like people love their phones. Um, so you're going to have the phone anyway. So you're not giving up the phone. Right. You're just adding to it. And I, you know, I, I again, this question specifically looks to me like someone who says, I want pictures of my vacation that don't look like they were taken on a phone. So got to have a camera for that. Yeah, we we recently had um, some friends visit, and one of our friends uses a small. I think I believe it's a Fuji, uh, like a small. Um, I think it's a Micro Four Thirds uh, camera, and the photos she was able to take on it were noticeably better than the iPhone photos, but not necessarily in the like you know massive amounts of sharpness. Like that's not what, what, what I noticed about them. What I noticed about them was that they just had a different color tone. Like just like the way that the camera rendered tones and and colors and skin tone and the, the color science is what they call it in the biz, right? Better like, color mm-hmm. science, which is so weird when I read it, but that's what they use in the, in reviews. And I wouldn't necessarily even say better; it was just different, and that was refreshing. Like after seeing mostly only iPhone pictures myself for a very long time, to have a few pictures that were in the in this like group photo library we had um, from the trip that that were taken by like a quote real camera uh they looked noticeably different and it was it was just a refreshing thing to see and and it, I, I think in some ways they are they were better technically uh in some ways the iphone pictures are easier to take you know good pictures with but it, it was interesting like seeing seeing what another camera could do and it was it was nice you know it the, the way the iphone renders colors and and contrast and stuff it's very, you know, scientifically optimized. It's like it's like when you when you eat at like a fast food place, you know, like this has been optimized by flavor scientists to like maximally taste exactly the way it's supposed to. You know, <laughs> you know, eating like a Dorito. It's like this is just like all flavor science has gone in here. But then you have like different food sometimes that has different priorities, and it's refreshing and it's good and it's different. That's how the color rendering of this camera was. I think it's the same as those analogies in another way and that the iPhone photos are processed, just like processed food. Like the reason they look the way they do is you're starting with garbage and you really have to process it (laughs) to make it appealing. Whereas the ones that kind of look different are starting with a better product and then a less noisy image from the sensors. Like the iPhone is doing a lot of work. And so the, the iPhone pictures look the way they do because the raw material they're starting with is just total garbage. And the computational stuff is working overtime to combine them, denoise them, contour them. You do the HDR stuff like, and it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. That's amazing. That's why we like iPhone pictures. That's why they come out so good because the phone does all that stuff. But the regular camera 
can do so much less and just say, look, our raw material off the sensor is 10 times better. We don't have to do that much processing. And, you know, even for things like the colors, a lot of the colors, I'm not saying they're synthesized because all the colors are synthesized from various sensor readings, but like you're getting more raw material to work with from a camera with a big sensor and big glass and all that. So you don't have to grind over it as much. You can allow it to sort of come through as is more. And that it lets you have, I'm sure, different kinds of quote unquote color science, uh, whereas the, the, the phone has to do tons of heavy lifting and multiple exposure and exposure bracketing and combining to get what it thinks is a representation of what's in front of it. Like, I'm not going to say that the big camera looks quote unquote more natural, but like you said, it can, it can look different to you because it, it, bottom line is it has been through a very different pipeline to get to the final form. It's funny coming off a beach vacation a couple of um, weeks ago and actually a day trip to the beach literally today. Uh, I brought the big camera with me today. I brought my GoPro with me and I brought, of course, my phone with me. And the only thing I really took pictures on today happened to be the GoPro, which is a terrible still still camera. Like it's it's truly bad. But I was in the water. And I certainly don't want to bring my big camera in there. I do, John, the same thing you do. So I'm not like, I'm not absolutely opposed to it. But generally speaking, I try to avoid it if I can. I have lightly cracked the back of my iPhone. And so I don't want to get that wet because I am never again going caseless, caseless. And so I was left with the GoPro because I was in the water a lot today. When I was on the beach trip, I did use the big camera a lot. And it's so frustrating. I've probably said this before. It's so frustrating because I'll look at the pictures that the big camera took. And in terms of like having a proper telephoto lens so I can get close to my subject without actually being close to them. And in terms of the bokeh, even on a, I think my zoom is an F 2.8 and my prime is like an F 1.4 or something like that. And I'm, and I almost never put the prime on anymore because I'm trying to get close to like a moving child or whatever the case may be. Um, or just, just a far away child more than anything else. And I look at these photos and then the, and the bokeh is great. And, you know, I think the color is pretty good, although I'm not, you know, a particularly astute critic of these things. But then I'll look at the sky and like the sky is completely blown out. And so I miss the HDR of the iPhone. And then I think about how I have to go and like post-process all of these to put geotags in because I'm not a monster like you, John. And I wish I had the iPhone. And so... Are you shooting on auto? No, I'm shooting aperture priority. What do you have your aperture set for? Uh, usually like between two and four, generally speaking. Mm, I, mean, I don't know why your sky is blown out as much as it is. When people are outdoors on a sunny day, I feel like it's not a challenging HDR situation where you should be able to get reasonable balance. Well, but. because I don't have HDR. I, I, I don't have HDR at all in this camera. I, well, I know, but I'm saying even without HDR, like it's not, it doesn't seem like it would be a super challenging situation to have a reasonably good exposure on the person's face that's in sunlight and the sky that's behind them. I mean... Well, and also I'm firing these, you know, from the hips, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing hours and hours of, well, that's exaggerating. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of calibration. No, no, no cross-processing, just right off the, right off the camera. I mean, you just like, I don't know enough about photography to know how, what, what you might need to change other than it seems like you're overexposing a little bit. But if you, if the faces, I don't know, you'd have to look at a specific picture. All I can say is like, I take a lot of pictures of people at the beach and having the sky blown out behind people is not usually a problem for me. And I am not doing anything particularly fancy with my camera. And, and I think you have a better camera than I by a fairly large margin. But like I dropped in the chat in, in our super secret private cha text channel um, or private Slack channel. I, I don't want to put these on the show notes and I apologize for that um, because it has pictures of the kids, which I mostly try to keep off the internet now. But um, 
if you look at the first couple of pictures, they are shot on the big camera and you can tell because the subject's super close. And then you look at the next couple of pictures and, you know, maybe you wouldn't, I, I would say the sky's blown out in the, in the ones in the big camera and maybe you wouldn't, but certainly without question, the sky on the pictures taken with my phone is far better exposed than the ones taken with the big camera. And perhaps that's user error on my part. Well, that's not the, that's not the same sky. It's totally, it's framed totally differently. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with Casey. It's what, where the iPhone really excels is first of all, an, an area I forgot to mention video, like also true. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's nearly impossible for lay people who are not really good video shooters to get better video from any other camera than you get out of an iPhone with with no effort whatsoever. So that's part number one. But I would even say a lot of that actually sends to photos now too. Like what you get photo-wise out of an iPhone, especially in regards to dynamic range, uh, and you know whether it's you know the built-in HDR stuff or just you know just just various other ways that it processes dynamic range, it's so much so far ahead of what any standalone camera does. Now, there's reasons for that. You know, people who really know what they're doing with standalone cameras can, you know, capture the much better data from the much better optics and much better sensor and can typically do a good amount of post-processing on it to do things like, you know, you expose to the left or expose to the right, whichever one it is where you you basically expose <laughs> for the highlights not to be blown out. And the result is your shadows are super dark right out of the camera, but then in post, you raise up the shadow detail with all these amazing you know, sensor dynamic ranges that we have nowadays uh, with, with standalone cameras. But that all takes work and exactly. skills and talent that many of us don't have or don't have the time for. Hi. Right. And so what you get out of an iPhone for dynamic range is so much better and more pleasing and more usable. And typically you get more dynamic range detail because it's so hard to use, for most people, to use standalone cameras to capture things like a bright sunny sky with anything else in the frame. Yeah. And so what I'm driving at in a roundabout way is, and, and the pictures I've shown Marco and John are not the greatest representations of, you know, like really excellent pictures that my phone has taken. Actually, John, I forgot to show you, I did take a, a single uh, bird picture for you since you were apparently spamming all of Instagram with 300 bird pictures while you were on your beach vacation. Uh, the, 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 the reason I put all those pictures is they're not pictures of people who might not want to have their pictures shown. So birds don't complain. That's <laughs> true. Uh, but anyways, uh, uh, you know, there are examples of pictures I took with my big camera and also the day I've, I've stumbled on just now is a relatively overcast day. So in many ways, I'm not giving you a great example. But, you know, I would get out the big camera, particularly in Zoom situations, and I would think to myself, man, I'm so glad I brought the big camera. But then about half the time I would think, wow, the sky is blown out, man. I kind of wish I had the iPhone for this. Oh, I got to geotag everything now. I kind of wish I had the iPhone for this. So <laughs> it, the, the big camera definitely has space in my life, and that's why I still bring it. But as I've said many times over the last couple of years, as the iPhone gets better and better, if it wasn't for just having such better glass on this camera... I don't think I would ever use it, but to get that really decent bouquet, to get some, I would argue in some cases, some much better color, I really do need to get out the big camera. And that's not really a complaint, but it's just, it's wild to me how in just a few years, again, we've said this many times on the show, in just a few years, we've gone from, yeah, we'll use the iPhone in a pinch to, yeah, I'll use the big camera when I like really want to get a <laughs> really good picture and God, what a pain in the ass it is. You know, it's just such a, such an unbelievable change from the way it used to be. And that, that's a good thing in the grand scheme of things. But as someone who 
wants to be a ever better amateur photographer, it I feel like it is limiting for me to only use my iPhone, which is also not really true because you can get incredible shots from an iPhone if you work at it. But I don't know. It's just a very odd place to be that, that here it was. I had the big camera with me and I had people that I wanted to take pictures of with my big camera, including not only my family, but the family that we were visiting with. But I ended up just using a friggin' GoPro because that was the most convenient tool for that particular work.